Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael, and with me, as usual, is my co-host, Cameron. Click, click, clack. Why, hello, Michael. How are you? Oh, I'm, I'm fine, except for uh, this bed that I'm trapped in for some reason. Yeah, how's that feeling? Feeling good? Uh, I mean, it's it's great now that I'm addicted to uh, uh painkillers. I mean, that's great. Uh, how's uh, Homestuck the Threequel coming? You working on that? <laughs> oh yeah, no, I'm 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 tapping right away. Tap 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 tap. Look at that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Telling all all up. the adventures about John and John and Carcat's child and and all mm-hmm. that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 Grimling, the most beautiful boy. Yeah, Grimling the Beautiful Boy. Okay, great. Good, good, good. Uh, keep on working on it, because if you don't, I'm going to give you all a tickle. <laughs> all right, then. <laughs> all righty. <laughs> click, click, click. Well, it's just me now. <sighs> and scene. And scene. Great. Thank you for coming to our improv show, everybody. Mm-hmm. Great. All right. Good up. Yep. <laughs> Catch our new Netflix special. <laughs> Look, we're constantly pitching on this show. Yeah. Sometimes it works. Sometimes I get DMs. I mean, not from any television executives, <laughs> but sometimes I do get DMs that are very helpful about the things we're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes we get sent an email or two. If you're working on a misery adaptation, we just lost James Conn. We're ready for a re-up. All I'm saying, let us write it. Yeah, I think we uh, could do a good job. The contemporary misery reboot that exists. We're talking about misery today, by the way. Right. Um, the contemporary misery reboot that like takes place in the age of the internet is a very different thing. <laughs> it's just the it's like the inverse how you doing son meme. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? Explain that. Walk that out for Instead me. Instead of how you doing son, it's uh, hey. You better be working. Are you winning? You know, or it's not how you do it. It's are you winning, son? Right? Yes. But it's like, you know, but you got to like stream on Twitch the whole time. It, it, it's about, here's the pitch. It's about someone's favorite Twitch streamer uh-huh. who was kidnapped and put into, onto the dark web. Mm-hmm. Yes. And no, they got to stream all day. Yeah. yeah. The dark web has to be involved. Loot oh boxes are in there. I don't know. We'll make it a moral allegory. Don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. That's like hot right now, right? <laughs> or if it's a moral allegory. Yeah. But ambivalent. <laughs> you ever read uh, Misery before? Misery came out, what year did this come out? 87? Ni- yeah, 1987. This is like the, the third of four books that King put out in 87. Yes, so so King, uh, it's like fall of 86 through fall of 87. So it's not one oh, yeah. calendar year, mm-hmm. but it's like, you know, one uh, 12-month period. Right. Uh, and y- yeah, I think he puts out four books there. 
Uh, just a reminder, in case you haven't listened to the other episodes, you should give those another shot. But I, those four books are It, Eyes of the Dragon, actual accessible paperback. You can listen to our episode on Eyes of the Dragon if you actually want to see what's going on. But Eyes of the Dragon is a mass release. Uh, Misery, and then The Drawing of the Three. Mm-hmm. And then the Tommyknockers is actually kind of right after that. It's just there's a little bit of a gap. Mm-hmm. Um, but there there are basically four novels that come out roughly three months, you know, in between them. Uh, and that is not a thing that happens in American publishing before this moment. Yeah, that's a lot of books by one person being published and uh, all of them ending up on like the bestseller lists at one time. Right. Plenty of pulp writers are doing this kind of thing, right? You know, Philip K. Dick is writing a book every two months or whatever, and it's coming out fairly fairly quickly in the 50s and 60s. But those are like paperback originals that are, uh, you know, mass market oriented. They're pulps, you know, uh, in the the bestseller market, you know, of literary, quote unquote, literary fiction, right? Popular fiction that is uh, showing up in hardcover and uh, at your local... B. Dalton's. <laughs> That's the information I keep finding about these books because there was actually a distribution deal with B. Dalton's for mm. a bunch of King's books in the 80s, and that actually might have something to do with uh, his success there. Um, but but yeah, so anyway, saying all that to say, Misery comes out in the middle of this kind of huge run, and uh, guess what? It becomes a bestseller. Yeah. Uh, so here uh, is an some some words from an article by David, I think, Straightfield is how you say his, Straightfeld, uh, is uh, I think how you say his last name. He was a Washington Post staff writer, and he wrote this article for the Washington Post, but it was reprinted in the Castle Rock newsletter. Uh, so just some, uh, uh, some numbers here. Uh, uh, everyone who knows him says Stephen King is one of the nicest guys around, largely unaffected by the fact that last fall's blockbuster It, this past winter's fantasy The Eyes of the Dragon, the current misery in this fall's The Tommyknockers are being issued at an average rate of about a million hardbound copies each. If all of these copies end up on someone's night table, the Bangor main writer will be responsible for, at a very rough estimate, one and one half percent of adult trade paperbound or yeah, trade hardbound books sold during these 15 months. Um, no one in the book business can remember anything like this happening. Skip forward a little bit. Uh, in the past year, Stephen King has passed beyond bestsellerdom into a special sort of nirvana reserved uh, for him alone. Not since James Hilton scored with Goodbye Mr. Chips and Lost Horizon 50 years ago has a writer had two novels on the hardcover bestseller list at the same time. King did that earlier this year, but it's nothing compared to the record he will undoubtedly have by the end of November. Four hardcover novels on the list in a seven-month period. Even he thinks it's bizarre. Quote, I should have peaked, he says, four or five years ago. Uh, Yeah, you remember that literary classic, Goodbye, Mr. Chips? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but yeah, that's wild. Yep. Uh, the the article, we can talk about this like as we get into the book, but the other thing the article points out that is uh, sort of distinct about King, uh, and it compares him here, right? Like there are other popular writers, of course, working in America at this time, and we get uh, Danielle Steele, Jackie Collins, uh, James Mickner. Uh, 
But the thing that seems distinctive about King, at least from the perspective of this article, is his fandom, right? Having mm-hmm. a dedicated right. fandom uh, is is something that seems unique to King, at least from uh, this particular perspective. And I think that's interesting because it does, you know, those other people that I mentioned, I think the the distinction there, right, is that King is working out of a genre space. He's bringing kind of like uh, uh more traditional is not the right word, right? But he he's bringing uh, a, a sort of like structure of fan engagement uh, mainstream, essentially, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so here's actually, I, I was going to wait a little bit to read it, but this is probably an important time to do it, especially before we get into the summary in case people don't know what's going on with Misery. Mm-hmm. Weirdly enough, right, this is probably, I don't know, it's top three Probably not the most famous thing that Stephen King has done, but it's pretty high up there mm-hmm. uh, in the sense that, I mean, we're going to talk about in the bonus episode um, over at Range Touch. You can go to rangetouch.com, but patreon.com slash rangetouch, uh, where you can get it. Uh, they made a movie with Kathy Bates, and she won an Oscar for it, mm-hmm. and James Caan, uh, and uh, Rob Reiner directed? Yep. Question mark? Uh, and so, right, I mean, doubling down on the body um and uh, becoming a, a truly actually a real Oscar film mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of astonishing um and uh, so yeah so you know the the resonance of misery is much like Cujo you know we talked about uh, in the Cujo episode how it has this kind of weird resonant quality outside of itself and I guess Pennywise the clown as well even if maybe not it the the novel uh, resonates as much I think misery's right up there with those two um, okay, so here's the thing I want to read. Um, sorry. Mm-hmm. It's all right. So so I, this is from a book called The Stephen King Companion, edited by George Beam. And it's a really interesting book. It is the most hodgepodge-ass book I've ever seen. It is like just some... It's like interviews for a part, some summaries, a chronology of published books, uh deep dives into individual novels with a bunch of anecdotes about them. It's just a bunch of random stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty interesting in that regard. But here's um, just a section called Welcome to My Nightmare from the Pages on Misery. And the Pages on Misery are mostly just summary um, with some interview excerpts and stuff like that. I have another excerpt I want to read later on in the... uh, in the episode, but this is just a little section called Welcome to My Nightmare, and this is not like a quote from anyone. I'm just going to read the whole paragraph. A King insider shared with me some anecdotes that showed what it's like to live under the microscope. King is in Wilmington, North Carolina, having dinner with his family and friends at a restaurant. Surprisingly, nobody approaches him for an autograph. As King leaves, he sees a long line of fans waiting outside, waiting for an autograph. King is at a bookstore signing books. The line of customers with King books in hand stretches down both sides of the mall, blocking some entrances and angering store managers. After an extended period of signing, it becomes physically impossible to sign another book. Rather than go out the front way past the long line of fans who have waited patiently, King asks to be let out through the back door. For whatever reasons, he is not allowed to do so. He walks out the store into the mall where long lines of disappointed fans wait with books in hand. So, like, this is the environment. I have no, and that's the end of that segment. I have mm-hmm. no idea, like, what, what, like, the upshot of that in a book is. But for for our purposes, right, very illustrative of uh, 
of like what the environment is for King. He can't go anywhere without people showing up and knowing he is Stephen King. Uh, and wanting him to sign books specifically, uh, you know, like a very notable thing to want. So that's the environment that misery comes out of. Yeah, there's uh, and I looked through the Castle Rock newsletters and I have some really interesting stuff there, particularly from Tabitha that I'll get into in a little bit. Uh, but like similarly there, I caught a light, a lot of anecdotes about fans who, um, in one case, Right. Uh, someone who s- sent pictures of like their living room to King uh, and he had been on the cover of Newsweek, um, I think, around the time of the publication of it. And this person yeah, was just he, like, he, yeah, he was a cover story on both, I think, Newsweek and definitely life. Mm-hmm. No time. He was on time. Sorry. OK. Uh, yeah, maybe maybe it was time. Uh, at any rate, uh someone was collecting just that issue and like had a whole bunch of them like on the walls of their living room and like, like, and like sent a picture of that to him. Uh, And it was just kind of, and uh, you know, he, he talks a lot uh, either, either him or like people who are close to him uh, who are showing up in, in the newsletter, just talking about like, you know, what on earth do you do with this? Like what? Like what is my reaction supposed to be to the fact that you're collecting magazines with my face on them, right? And that you think this is a good thing that you should share with me? <laughs> yeah. Why are you letting me know about it? I guess is is the big thing. Um, I guess the other big piece of context before we actually talk about misery is that Stephen King is addicted to cocaine, right? Mm-hmm. And he's an alcoholic as well. Yep. Kind of kind of a combo back to back right here and. He quits using in 87. Mm-hmm. So that's about to happen, like, in in history time. Right. Um, but this is a novel that is just as much about that. You know, it's just as much, uh, as much about drug use and drug dependency as it is about the horror things that we associate with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so with that kind of on the table, do you think I should jump into the summary then? I think we should, and then uh, and then we can talk about when did you read this for the first time. Okay, so uh, this is the five-sentence summary. It is the part of the show where we summarize the plot of the book that we have just read, uh, beginning to end entirely in five sentences. Uh, we're coming up with it off the top of our head. We're not uh, slowly reading some sort of Wikipedia summary or like Googling as many different summaries as we can and then stringing them together. Uh, so if you hear any pauses or lags, that's what's going on. It's the brain working, the gears turning up there. Uh, so yeah, let me let me just uh, take a moment here, center myself, and I will summarize misery. Paul Sheldon is a very successful, popular novelist. While driving through a snowstorm, he wrecks his car and is rescued by a woman named Annie Wilkes, who lives in remote Colorado and claims to be his number one fan. Annie Wilkes is actually extremely unwell and also a serial killer, and she ends up 
trapping Paul in her back bedroom where she both nurses him back to quote-unquote health, but also gets him addicted to painkillers and forces him to write a new novel specifically for her that is aimed at correcting the faults she sees in his previous work. He does do this uh, and then eventually tries to escape and kills her. And that's really kind of the end. Sentence five. There's a whole bunch of like weird stuff going on in this book also about like 19th century imperialist adventure fiction and like the imaginary of quote unquote Africa. And we'll talk about that. Uh huh. That's it. <laughs> that's the book. Mm hmm. What a, uh, it's an odd one. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say just up, 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 toodly doodly top here, right? That uh, this, it is a survivor type, if you remember that story. Mm-hmm. It's basically survivor type, but stretched out over, I don't know, 300 pages? Mm-hmm. 300 pages, like right over 300 pages in my copy. I yeah. got a classic Viking paperback, like full-sized paperback Ooh. with the, the frown and Steve on the back, mustache Steve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's that, but it's just stretched way, way out with some uh, literary uh, maneuvers mm-hmm. in a general sense. And I you know, I went on a real roller coaster with this book. I, I can talk about that in just a minute, but I don't know. I, I When I read this, for the first time when I was a kid, I think I just read it and then went on with my life. Like, mm-hmm. it did not rate, did not stick with me. I read it, and I was like, that surely was a novel, and I continued on my way. Uh, did, did it have a bigger impact on you? Uh, so, I think what is what I remember being interesting about Misery is that I sort of put off reading it for a long time. Um, I think my mom hates this book, actually. I think this is the book that, uh, like, the last Stephen King book my mom read for a good long time uh, because uh, it was one that she would complain about when I started reading Stephen King. She was just like, ugh, Misery, gross. Which um, part? I don't know. She was never particularly specific. Uh, she just said she didn't like it. And so I kind of like put it off because I was like, well, if mom thinks it's gross, I probably would think that too. Uh, and then I read it kind of late in my Stephen King journey. I would have read it like later in high school, maybe junior year or something like that, maybe even senior year, because uh, I got it out of the high school library and I was like, I needed something to read. And I was like, well, this is a, like this is the Stephen King book that I haven't read. And this is maybe around the time or in the run up to uh, the Dark Tower books, right? The, the final couple mm-hmm. of Dark Tower books. Um. And so uh, I was kind of just like going through and like reading the Stephen Kings that I hadn't read up until that point, because that's how I ended up reading all of these things. And now I'm reading them all again for for you, dear listener. But anyhow, uh, I remember kind of liking it. Uh, I was like, well, I, I, I guess I have a higher tolerance for sort of like gross out stuff than my mom does. And sort of like uh, th- th- this book is could arguably be described as torture porn, right? Or some some <laughs> significant portion of it. Uh, yeah, I mean because it's it is uh, just horrible events happening in sequence and and on a loop, kind of the same events over uh-huh. and over again, back and forth. Um, yeah, yeah, I'll have more to say say about that in just a minute, but yeah. for sure, I think you could it, it it fits right within that genre. 
Right. So uh, I, I guess I have a higher tolerance for that. And I, I come out thinking like that Misery is pretty solid as a book. Um, and so I was interested in coming back to it for the show uh, to see if whether see whether or not that held up. And it doesn't uh, kind of what I was, you know, in in, in my uh, heart of hearts. Like what uh -huh. happens here, like what I wanted from Misery was for it to turn out to be another Cujo where like, uh, you know, I, I in in the same way that Misery made like no impression on you when you first read it, like Cujo made almost no impression uh, on me. And then I returned to it for this show. And like, lo and behold, it turns out to be what I think is, you know, one of one of King's best books, right? And like, not just best books in in terms of like the story it tells, but in terms of craft, right? Uh, like the the moves that he pulls there and sort of like mm -hmm. uh, the way that that book is structured and, and all the sort of plates that it spins really, really well. Um, and part of that I would attribute to it being kind of a stripped down thriller. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so misery seems to me to be an opportunity to get back there and it doesn't really stick the landing. In fact, this book, I think feels sort of like on the one hand, it's got the big concept, right? I like the concept popular novelist gets, uh, uh, you know, imprisoned by, uh, unwell fan who, uh, tortures them and like forces them to write. Like I, I, you've you been know. very charitable with the unwell. <laughs> but I, the thing about Annie Wilkes, right, is that she is um, like a 1930s film imaginary of an insane person. Yes. Right? Like, she's so far away removed from any human being. Oh, yeah. Right? It's like a fantasy of a fantasy of a mental disorder <laughs> that a human being who is also a fantasy might have, right? Like, she is, in most cases, she's like... Frankenstein, yes. right? Like, uh -huh. like she's this weird automaton who's just doing stuff. So I say that just just to say, like, uh, I I think there's a world in which we, you know, a human being, not us, but like a human being might want to like talk about Annie Wilkes in such a way that like actually addresses, you know, what's going on with like her mental state and how that's that's happening. But I think we got to be clear at the top that like this is Stephen King applying the like. I don't know, you know, his kind of like loose grip on the facts of things in the world mm -hmm. and then applying it to uh, like the serial killer phenomenon, you know, and that's a big quotation marks, but it's the mid eighties, right? Like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, America at this point has been going through 10, 15 years of the emergence of the contemporary serial killer. And Stephen King's like, well, what if I staple that onto all these other kind of literary tropes? Mm -hmm. um, and what is produced is bizarre. Well, it, it, and that's precisely what ends up happening uh, with my reading experience of the novel this time, right? It's like big concept. I think there's something really uh, cool there and actually something uh, you could get like, I think you could get a more literary novel out of this setup than what you end up getting precisely because as you're saying, um, what really ends up happening is that this is just this this ends up being just kind of a middle of the road thriller and Annie in particular, like what ends up being interesting to me in the final analysis, right, are all these weird things like this stuff about, like, adventure fiction in Africa that we're going to talk about, or as you're just saying, the thing that I'm picking up on this time is the way that Annie Wilkes is described as wholly inhuman, right? Like, the the yeah. uh, uh, writing strategies, the rhetorical strategies by which this is accomplished uh, are kind of fascinating because they're so weird. So Annie is like... 
uh, described as literally she she has no interiority, like both psychologically and like physically uh, early on there. Are all of these moments where Paul is uh, imagining her as like, you know, he looks into her eyes and sees nothing. And this is notably a thing that King it's a, a story that King recycles about meeting fans that he thinks give him weird vibes. Right. It's like he says it's like uh, you look into the eyes and you realize no one's home and the house is haunted. Um, but, uh, when Paul looks at Annie, there's all this stuff about how, like, he, he has this sort of, like, uh, uh, vision or kind of imaginative, like, uh, uh, insight or something that she has no internal organs right that she is like just solid flesh all the way through and this is of course bound up also in the fact that she's like a fat woman um a, a, a thing that king is you know going to be obsessed with and orbit around forever uh but like that's happening uh she's also described as like stone-like as like lip she is compared to an idol right or or mm-hmm. uh like a a, a a statue of a god or goddess rather is is the the repeated term um she's also described as you said as, as almost like frankenstein she's like a mechanism right she's like a wind-up doll and this gets uh further emphasized when we learn about her being a serial killer because she has a very regular like pattern and plan and she just repeats uh and yeah it like that ends up being fascinating to me right the way that um king has to not has to right but chooses to write this character who is like uh brute materiality and uh also like because of how this is working like femininity and like uh uh there's there's some like uh, claims about like the the workings of the mind right like what is the human mind and at what point does uh the the mind become quote unquote uh non or like deviant enough that the person is no longer like fully human um is uh some of the concerns that i think steve is trying to think through here uh gesturing back to dan's macabre mm-hmm. uh i i i mean i want to i, I want to continue to get into Annie wilkes but i gotta say this at the you know before we talk about the content of the novel at the point where I was a hundred pages into this, I was seriously contemplating that this would be worse than rage. (laughs) I think the first hundred pages of this book are worse than rage. Okay. By a long shot. Mm hmm. Uh, what saves this book is it is in fact a novel, <laughs> right? It's got a beginning, middle, and end. <laughs> Characters do things. Uh, they have some sort of interiority. It's not like a weird stage play. I mean, ultimately, that's what hurts rage is that it doesn't have any kind of maneuver, right? Uh, yeah. I guess unfortunately about this book is we don't get long segments about you know a sniper underneath a <laughs> car. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but I did come around on it a little bit more than that. But I think this is in like the bottom half of of what we've read for sure. Um, I, uh, I was not super hot on it, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, do we want to just like, uh, kind of walk through what occurs here? We want to talk about Annie Wilkes. Uh, maybe we can talk about Paul Sheldon, our, our, uh, main character here, Paul Sheldon, Mm -hmm. who, uh, he's a novelist Mm -hmm. and he writes romance novels that he hates. Right. Right, romance novels he hates, got a lot of fans, make a lot of money, but he goes to, he's hanging out in in, uh, in Colorado, and he writes his new book, Fast Cars, <laughs> his literary book about uh, uh, car thieves, 
Yeah. He takes fast cars and he, he's like, hell yeah. I'm going to get shit faced and drive from here to California with my book on the passenger seat. Mm hmm. Now, this is. And then he has a car accident, drives off the road, smashes his legs. Annie Wilkes finds him, kidnaps him. That's how the whole thing gets going. But the, there is a, I don't know, a character motivation that is so deep in addiction here or something. Like, I don't know. There's just no novel in which anyone would do that other than this novel. <laughs> don't you think? Isn't that so weird? Doesn't it feel so contrived? It it does. It's very strange how, uh, like, he just, I mean, okay, like, Let's let's uh, be as charitable as we can. Uh, mm. A wizard th- did it. That right. that's more charitable to me. If Stephen <laughs> King had said, and suddenly a wizard appeared and had Paul Sheldon appear in the bed with smashed legs, I would be more accepting and like <laughs> kind to that than what is here. But okay, as right. charitable as we are. So let's say let's say like yeah okay, uh, Paul Sheldon could do this, and in fact you know it's like totally within like the bounds of like physical possibility. So let's say he does that. Uh, what is like further contrived about it is that he goes missing for like four or five months, uh, and he doesn't really get declared missing. Like no one's looking for him because his agent or whatever is just like yeah, I guess he just ran off, even though he has like right, like the the search that should be that should kick off for him like doesn't kick off for like a huge amount of time and maybe that's just like i don't know a difference between like how missing persons cases were handled in the 80s versus now Mm -hmm. uh but yeah so not only does paul do something that is is such a laughably bad idea that it strains uh any sort of like capacity to believe in him as a character or sort of like feel sympathetic to him um the sort of way that it gets handled after that just it feels like uh, like the the entire world outside of Annie's house is just conspiring to keep Paul in Annie's house. Yeah, I mean, yes, I, ultimately, yeah, right. you know what I mean. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's also this kind of thing, right? It's impossible to consider Paul Sheldon without considering, you know, that he's he's a little bit Stephen King, right? Like a little bit. You know, it's being written from the perspective and, you know, you never want to do a one to one because that's not how books work. Uh, even if even if Paul Sheldon's name was Stephen King, this is not how books work. Right. But there is, but I do think what's interesting is that Stephen King is imagining an author who's just as successful as he is mm-hmm. and begins from a place of pessimism, which is no one would really start looking for me for six months. <laughs> I just don't think that's true. I think you're right. You know what I mean? I, I think that there's a kind of pessimism of position here, right? Of like, how important could I be? Uh, well, buddy, uh, you make everyone so much money that they would be out there themselves. Your agent would be out there in a car himself driving around, right? Like, you're, you're, you write checks for people um, and, like, create entire careers. Kirby McCauley would be out there zooming yeah. around <laughs> in a Corvette looking for Stephen King if, if this occurred. So, yeah, there's something really, uh, you know, interesting going on with the, the contrivance there, but... Uh, Paul Sheldon is a romance writer, not a horror writer, not mm-hmm. a science fiction writer. What do you make of that? So this is, I, I wrote in the show doc some questions here. Um, 
uh, about sort of like the weirdness of how this plays out if you try to read this as if you try to read Paul as an analog for Stephen King. And now I have some stuff from Tabitha that I'll read uh, that maybe maybe helps us clarify some of this. Mm hmm. Uh, but yeah, so first of all, it is actually just like, let, let, like, let's make that clear, like how how uh, King sort of sets this up. So Paul Sheldon is an author who he he's writing kind of two types of novels simultaneously, and only one of them is successful. He writes kind of mainstream literary fiction, uh, but then he's also writing uh, this series of historical romance novels um, about this character named Misery Chastain. Uh, and they're kind of like uh, very uh, stereotypical, like 19th century uh, adventure romances about like this woman named Misery and like the two men who are in love with her and they're like rivals with each other, but also friends and, and all this stuff. Um, and it's these books specifically that make the money. And he hates that. He resents it. Uh, and the kind of like the, uh, one of the fulcrums of the novel is that his, the, the latest misery novel, uh, misery's child has just come out. And that is the one in which he kills off the character of misery. Uh, he has her die in childbirth. Um, and this ends up being a problem because Annie, of course, is part of the, the the legions of fans devoted to the Misery novels. She loves Misery Chastain. And so when she finds out that Paul has killed off Misery, uh, that's really like uh, where that's when she says, OK, well, you're going to write me a new book, right, where you fix all of these problems. Um, so the. Uh, the other scene we get is that uh, uh, we get Paul flashing back to when he wrote the scene of Misery dying and then he like jumped up and ran around his hotel room like, you know, uh, uh, going hee hee hoo hoo, clicking his heels together because uh, he was just uh, so happy to finally be rid of this character that that he hated that he felt was, uh, you know, kind of his albatross because um, he hates the Misery novels. And so uh, if you press this onto Stephen King, it becomes kind of both evocative and a little incoherent because, you know, the like what what Steve is doing with his career, I don't think could be in any way truly compared to what Paul is doing or like the situation that Paul is in. Uh, and let, do you agree with that? It's just like the the analogy doesn't quite like uh, uh, sketch out for me. Yeah, that's kind of the best part to me. I think yeah. is that that you could so easily read this as like a as a novel about Steve thinking through his relationship with his fans, right? And the mm -hmm. novel tells you to do that a bunch of times. You know what I mean? Like, I, I there's so many alliances between Paul Sheldon and Stephen King, and then yeah, it, when you really think about schematically what's going on, it just can't make sense, right? Like, right. He's not, you know, I don't know who else is like this. To be honest with you, right? Like. Right. Who was writing? I mean, Vonnegut, maybe? <laughs> like, I don't know. You know so, not writing romances, right? But writing, like, more popular novels and writing maybe a little bit more introspective novels. Mm -hmm. So uh, a fun thing about, like, fan stuff and how this novel is, in fact, set up to, to make you, like, think about this through the lens of Steve and his fans. It is dedicated uh, to Stephanie and Jim Leonard. Uh, actually, let me just go ahead and read it. Uh, read the dedication. This is for Stephanie and Jim Leonard, who know why. Boy, do they. So Stephanie Leonard, uh, at this point, is King's assistant. She is also the managing editor of the Castle Rock newsletter. 
so she is the one who is fielding the fan mail that is showing up in Castle Rock. Uh, she's occasionally writing some things for it, uh, and she's like, you know, uh, uh, arranging all of the contributors and things like that. So Stephanie Leonard is dealing, you know, with the fan base uh, in a very specific capacity. Jim Leonard, who I presume is her husband or partner or something, um, he is uh, the the king's caretaker for their home. Um, and so that, you know, the implication there is that, like, uh, where Stephanie is dealing with, like, the fan mail and everything, uh, Jim probably has had to deal, like, physically with fans outside the house and that sort of thing. Uh, so that's definitely, like, one of the framing things here. And King, like, talks about his fans and sort of his relationship with his fans all over kind of the, um, the like, interviews and, and things that surround this novel. Now... What is also then interesting uh, is that a couple of months after Misery comes out, Tabitha, King's wife, writes an article for Castle Rock, uh, basically uh, uh, seeming to respond to some sentiment that does not show up in Castle Rock itself. But, uh, you know, the, 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 the this article would not appear if it were not appearing in response to something because it's saying that, like... I need to set sort of the record straight that like misery is not Steve talking about his fans, right? It would be a mistake to read this as a one-to-one. Here is what Steve thinks about <laughs> like all of you. Oh, um, interesting. So I wonder if just the volume of mail immediately ticks up. Yeah. Well, speaking of mail, right? Some of the, some of the weird stuff that like comes out of like him talking about what he's received from fans, uh, uh, people sent him a live scorpion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he said he received, he, Steve. yes. Oh, uh, no, bud. you're not, he's not equipped for that. He said it was like, it was alive and we fed, he said we had to buy it mealy bugs from the local pet shop to feed it until it died. Um, wow. Uh, someone at one point sent a box uh, full of bones and fur from uh, dead kittens. What? Yeah. Uh, I, this actually reminded me of um, uh, the dead zone, right? When uh, Johnny starts getting all of the fan mail for being psychic. And we talked back in that right, episode that this right. was clearly like that. You, you could see in that novel King kind of responding to the onset of his fame because there was yeah. all this, all the weird things that Johnny was getting in the mail. Um. So uh, all of this stuff has happened. And nevertheless, right, Tabitha says, um, you shouldn't read this like one to one because this isn't how writers work. And she walks through kind of her own process, right? She's like, I like I am not an alcoholic, but I have written characters who are alcoholics, right? Like I the, just live with one, right? Like that, that's, <laughs> that's not a thing that gets mentioned. That was also happening in my mind as I was reading this. Um uh, but she's also, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a murderer, right? But I have written from the perspective of them and that sort of thing. And she says, you know, like part of being a writer is like taking a thing and sort of elaborating it, right? A thing that you see or that happens to you, and then like elaborating it in a different direction. And she actually uses um, the Shining here as an example, uh, where she says, you know, like uh, 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 specifically calling to the scene uh, where Danny ruins Jack's manuscript, and then Jack, like in a rage, breaks Danny's arm. Uh, she says, you know, there there were times when, like, the kids got into the papers and, like, crayoned all over the manuscripts. And, like, we didn't beat them or anything. Like, we didn't break their arms, but, like, 
you know, like we were unhappy because the kids got into stuff and ruined it. And like the part, you know, the writerly process is being like, well, what if this happened? And like everything was like it was different people and everything was worse. Um, Right. So uh, uh, the other thing that she talks about quite a bit actually is Pet Cemetery, Right. Uh, And about sort of the experiences that um, she and Steve had uh, with Owen, who I mentioned that uh, the sort of like the concerns about um gauge and everything and like the death of a child there were kind of building out of uh, uh their concerns about owen having hydrocephaly um and uh she also says you know there was a point where like we we had moved into a new house it was right next to a busy road and owen was a toddler who thought it was hilarious if he ran away from mommy and daddy and he went he like booked it toward the road one day and we could hear a truck coming and he didn't he didn't run out into the road he didn't get hit we grabbed him right we we saved him but you know that pet cemetery comes out of what if that situation happened but worse right, right. <laughs> um so uh, she talks through kind of all this and she says, and I'm going to quote here from, from the thing, <clears throat> Paul Sheldon, the writer protagonist in misery is not Stephen King, only a kind of thread spun from the imagination of Stephen King. Steve does not feel trapped in a genre. I think most fans would agree that he has actually transcended the ghetto of the horror story again and again. He says himself there was no conscious choice, no deliberate prostitution, as Paul Sheldon seems to believe he has committed. Steve has been writing his quote-unquote serious work all along. It's what you've been reading. There are no precious arty novels in the drawers moldering for lack of publisher's interest. What Paul Sheldon and Stephen King have in common are wide and devoted readerships, critical prejudice against the genres they work in, and an obsessional relationship with their work. Uh, take the L, uh, the King family, right? Like, <laughs> good God, you're the best-selling novelist of all time, mm-hmm. right? You were reading me some numbers earlier. One percent of all fiction <laughs> yeah. is being purchased by human beings. <laughs> and, and, you know, in 1987, is written by Stephen King. It's it's like it's like the fucking Russo brothers, right? Uh-huh. Like. Uh, you know, or, uh, you know, any of these, like, Marvel things, right? Or Disney, right? Like, oh, I'm so sorry that you live in the gilded cage of being the most popular <laughs> object in popular culture. Uh, <laughs> like, what are you talking about? The chip on their shoulder is just so mad. I'm sorry the New York Times doesn't review every book well. Not every book is good, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's just the way things are. <laughs> so, uh... Yes, Ugh. right. This is all true. Here here then is like a way like reading this thing from Tabitha actually so we we can also like, you know, sort of read against the grain on this however much we want and and try to find, you know, Steve in this novel. Although I don't think that that's a particularly great idea because uh I do think that he I mean, he's not a stupid man. Like, he would understand how easy it would be to read through this to, like, his actual opinions. And so I think he did set up kind of a, a little hall of mirrors to misdirect and redirect. Uh, and functionally, this actually means that the 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 temptation to read this as Steve reflecting kind of straightforwardly on his fans um, really gets a lot of people. But I don't think that's what this book is about. I think... That this book is about punishing Paul Sheldon for disrespecting his own genre fiction. (laughs) 
No, I mean, that is the lesson. The, right. I, you know, if, if uh, you know, if we follow Stephen King down the path, right, that fundamentally horror is a conservative genre, meaning that horror is about presenting uh, worst case scenarios for mainline fears, right? Mm-hmm. You know, conservative, not in the sense of like it promotes a... A conservative message, but that ultimately it is about losing the thing that you find most central to your life and being within mainline culture, right? That's a mm-hmm. particular kind of thing. So conservative and conservative get aligned with one another, right? But mm-hmm. um, they are not inherently the same thing in this case. But uh, what, uh, yeah, I mean, this is a novel that is about a man who through an extreme amount of torture and punishment realizes that his genre work is in fact more important and significant than the literary you know pretensions that he has mm-hmm. uh as another kind of author um although i will say that the end of the novel kind of maybe pokes at that a little bit because it suggests that uh when you find the art uh you know again when paul sheldon finds the art again it is not a genre novel Mm-hmm. Right. Well, so there's a little bit of like he finds himself again in the end. But, uh, you know, the, the other way of reading, I guess, is is uh, what if someone uh, tortured you and Stockholm syndromed you into thinking that I mean, here's the flip side. Right. Entirely. Let me get let me give this clean. So we have an edit point. <laughs> here's the flip side of it. Uh, it. Paul Sheldon is someone who knows in his heart that literary pretension is the best thing. Right. Writing the literary novel. Uh And he is tortured into believing (laughs) that his genre novels are really good. You know, uh, uh, you know, uh, he's in the water. He can only Mm -hmm. see the water. And it's only through getting through the torture, getting past addiction, getting beyond that, that he realizes that genre is not enough, that he must, in fact, become a literary author. Um, And Mm -hmm. I just want to note that after Tommyknockers is when Stephen King was going to take his sabbatical. Mm hmm. Which he did not do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to read, uh, based on what you just said there, I want to read another thing from uh, Tabitha. Please. Uh, so she says, uh, you know, again, it would be a mistake to read Annie Wilkes as a personification of Steve's fans and readers. Uh, if she personifies any fan, it is perhaps Mark Chapman, which we can talk more about. Did you find that the Mark Chapman story? Uh, uh, no. So there is, uh, let's, let's break here for it then. Um, there is a story that Steve tells. About being in New York in, I think, 1979 or thereabouts, um, late 70s, and uh, going into, uh, he was recording a talk show segment, I think, to promote uh, his latest novel. So if it's, you know, late 70s, then it's like uh, The Stand, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um and he ha- there's a whole bunch of people outside the studio wanting his autograph, and one of them is very insistent, and it's a young man with, uh, you know, wire-rimmed glasses who's kind of odd, uh, and as I said, very insistent, uh, gets, like, uh, the thing that is notable about him is that uh, he wants a picture with Steve. Uh, and then when he signs the book, uh, he has him inscribe it to Mark. And then he's like, and I think that man might have been Mark Chapman, which is to say the the um, person who assassinated John Lennon, right? Right. Um, now, uh, factually, this is impossible because it turns out that Mark Chapman was like living in Hawaii during the time period when this would have happened. 
but Steve tells this story anyway, right? This kind of like uh, uh, numinous dread of this potential brush with, um, you know, like the implication there, right? Of of Chapman is kind of this celebrity chaser because that that is true, right? Chapman, uh, I I think this is true. I'm pretty sure. Uh, at least it's what I've read. Like Chapman wasn't just like I'm going to kill John Lennon and like that's what he set out to do. He actually went through a kind of series of like potential people that he was going to to murder. Oh, I see. Um, I think that's the case. And so, yeah, right. right. Steve tells the story of like this kind of brush with it. Um, so anyway, right. Like, uh, uh, Steve being the boomer that he is also like that, that like the death of one of the Beatles by assassin is going to weigh heavily in his mind anyhow. Right. Um, so that's like the Tabitha is saying, right? Don't don't read Annie as like this is what a Stephen King fan is, but more like this is this is the worst possible form of fandom, right? Like like uh, whatever the structure of fandom is, this is like the the most negative point of it, and like the real world analog would be uh, Mark Chapman. But then uh, Tabitha goes on. Perhaps more importantly, Annie Wilkes is a metaphor for the creative drive itself. If Steve were an automobile, and if horsepower were creative drive, he would have to be one of those marvelous metal monsters from the 30s, with 36 cylinders under the hood. An engine that, uh, uh, b- 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 an engine that powerful drives itself. There's like a typo there or something. Mm-hmm. It's It's pretty terrifying when it's going all out. Uh, misery is far more concerned with the way in which a creative person can be tortured by his own powers, addicted to the act of creation, damaged by it. At the end, Paul Sheldon has not freed himself of Annie Wilkes. She holds him captive still, emotionally and creatively. Mm-hmm. So, uh... You know, the the other fascinating thing then that comes out of this book for me as I'm reading it is is precisely the way in which uh, it wobbles between being a narrative about particular characters with particular histories and stories and whatever and being almost like allegorical and not just allegorical of like this is the author and this is the fan, but like by the end as uh, we're kind of gesturing out here as even like Tabitha is getting at uh, the 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 like awful fan and sort of the for lack of a better word, the pissy writer <laughs> are like uh, locked together, right? They're two sides of the same coin uh, because Paul comes to believe that he has written his best novel in Misery's Return at the behest of Annie and all of her torture. And, you know, it does sell like gangbusters. But as you say also, Cameron, at the end, there is this kind of question of like, well, is it selling like gangbusters because it's good or because the story around how it was produced was so sensational? Mm hmm. Uh, you want to talk about the actual book? <laughs> so all the things we know about the book. I, I mean, I guess I have one other thing to say, which is this. This is Stephen King. This is going to come up, I think, a few times over the next few episodes. Uh, there's a very famous speech that Stephen King gives in Virginia Beach mm-hmm. uh, for Banned Books Week in 1986. And uh, in the same way that I kind of think that Fangoria interview that I read is a little bit of a, because I've talked about the past couple episodes, it's a little bit of a skeleton key for understanding what's going on with Steve around this time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think this speech is a little bit of a skeleton key also for understanding like the late 80s for 
Steve, because he like cracks a beer open in the middle of the <laughs> of the uh, talk, and this is the second talk that I've read, or you know, second transcript of a talk that I've read, where Steve, in the middle of the talk, cracks a beer or pulls a beer out of his pocket oh and starts gosh. drinking it in the middle of the talk, right? Which is like he's clearly doing it as a little bit of a performance, but also knowing you know his alcohol uh, use at the time. You can't help but read it that way, right? Right. Um, but but so here is what he says. So there's a question in the Q and A about Bill Denbro from uh, uh, from it. By the way, this interview also confirms you and I chatted about it. But uh, that Bill is uh, Peter Straub, a hundred percent. He looks like <laughs> Peter Straub, uh, and apparently shares the exact same uh, like childhood experiences. Peter Straub, as a child, was hit by a car, and it he began to stutter after that. Same mm-hmm. kind of thing happens with Bill Denbro. So you called it in that episode, I think, without any kind of uh, I, uh, provocation. I called it based entirely on the physical description of Bill Denbro. And I was like, this feels like a reach. This feels weird. Uh, but here we are. Uh, <laughs> I am well, vindicated confirmed. in all things. Yep. Uh, Steve says it. But he says this. Uh, they they ask if uh, Bill is is based on Stephen King. And he says... it. It was to an extent, but when writers write about themselves, they always lie. The thing about writers is they write about themselves, and I've done this a couple times. We're about to get kind of two back-to-back, actually. Um, Is that you think to yourself, because you lie for a living, you think to yourself, I know what happened. This happened, this happened, and this happened. But it wasn't too interesting how that bit turned out. But suppose this had happened. So you change things around a little bit. So, you know, he's thinking in 86 very actively uh, about what what happens when you write about a writer and what happens when you bend the truth a little bit to kind of mm-hmm. get at something else, which I, which I think is interesting, fascinating. Um, this is the other thing I want to say because it really leads into a good discussion of Paul Sheldon. Uh, someone asks a question. They like submitted questions on slips of paper and he was just like ripping it out of a hat or something <laughs> while drinking a beer. Um, and so the question is, do you, do you scare yourself sometimes? And Steve says, the answer is, and then brackets, drinks beer. (laughs) So he's performing, you know, so the the answer is he takes a long drink of beer out of a can. Um, and he says this, there's always poor man's Valium when you get too scared. It comes in bottles. Who's going to be at the silver bullet tonight? Well, I'm one of them. Right. So like he's going to the bar later. Yeah, uh, and he says he scared himself a few times, but uh, you know, there's something really fascinating to me about how the the maneuver there immediately is not a kind of literary answer, right? Well, I write my way out of these things, which you would expect, I think, from a horror writer. I've heard that from many horror writers all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or you might hear, uh, you know, well, you know, no, because I'm a horror writer and that's the job. That's also a common horror writer answer. It is not a common horror writer answer. Uh, to be like, well, I just drink until I don't worry about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's being jokey a little bit, right? There, that's always the kind of thing is that Steve has always been a little bit jokey. But that was very illustrative to me about like, okay, it's 86. We know that he is about to hit a moment where he finds out, you know, he kind of realizes himself that he is drinking so much that he needs to get sober. Uh, and, you know, he, that is directly tied up in his craft. I mean, he's saying that, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's Those two things are inextractable from one another for him. So um, that's going to have a lot of bearing on the sabbatical coming up as well uh, that we'll talk about probably in the Tommy knockers in the next episode. But mm-hmm. let's talk about Paul Sheldon. Uh, 
he's he's this guy, you know, he does this whole thing, gets in an accident, and then he gets addicted to painkillers. Mm-hmm. Damn. <sighs> Poor Paul. Poor Paul. Paul Sheldon, to my mind, is like... I mean, he's one of the big weak points of the novel, uh, because... Oh, yeah, the main character? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's an issue. Uh, but it's it's weird to see this whiff in the way that it does, and I think probably some of the stuff that I was reading about, uh, like, Paul not... Like, maybe uh, King trying to not make Paul too much of an analog for himself or something, or trying to keep some sort of distance there. Maybe it falls out in this way. But, like, the thing about Paul that I just really need to, to say here is that as a writer, he just makes no sense. Like there's no, um, uh, like, so compare this again with like Bill Dinbro, uh, from it, uh, or looking forward because I've started reading this already since it's a long one. Uh, the Tommy knockers, uh, character there, the, the writer, Bobby Anderson. Um, both of these are characters who are writers who get, uh, like we get a long sort of history of like how they developed as writers and sort of where their interests come from and how did they end up writing the things that they write. Uh, and I think it's really notable that Paul Sheldon is this author character who, on the one hand, has all these literary aspirations and uh, sort of typical for King, his literary aspirations sound like boring as hell. Right. He's, he's got kind of the Ben Mears thing going on where he just like seems to be his literary novels just seem to be about like people who are in bad situations and or do crimes, maybe. Um mm -hmm. So, like, that's one type of thing, right? He's writing kind of like the Fast Cars novel that he thinks is going to win him a National Book Award is like this contemporary crime novel about a car thief. Uh, uh, so that's happening. And then on the other hand, Paul is writing 19th century historical romance. And there is literally at no point any sort of explanation as to how this happened, right? Like, how does this guy, who has, like, a particular outlook and sort of perspective on the world, how does he end up writing such a specific and strange kind of subgenre of, of all things, you know, romance novels? And there's never, we never get that story of how this developed for him. It's just a situation that he is in and he hates it. Uh, and I guess, you know, maybe like, uh, uh, to speak back to myself, like you don't need all this stuff, maybe, but, uh, if, if the story is about like the author and sort of the author's psychology and the creative process, I would expect at least some sort of reflection on like, why does Paul write the things that he writes? Why does, why does he want to write them? And, and, uh, you know, how did this all shake out? Um, but as it is, that's just, it's really not there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, there's too much uh, chatter about the pilings. <laughs> oh, save it for my kingism. Sure. The uh, but so yeah. So he kind of runs into uh, you know I, the the whole novel is really just a series of scenes back and mm -hmm. forth about Paul um, trying to remain human, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I say that in, in the very loaded way, right? He's trying to retain some dignity. He's trying to, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know, uh, win out in the face of adversity. But he knows immediately he's in a bad spot, right? Mm -hmm. Like, why am I not in a hospital? Why am I here? And then he finds out that, you know, it's Annie Wilkes. And Annie Wilkes is such a bizarre and odd character because uh, of some of the stuff that we just said a few minutes ago, right? Around 
I don't know, the kind of uh, thing that produces her, right? Or like what she is as a character, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but then all this other stuff going on with uh, references to H. Ryder Haggard. This is something that, that you brought up uh, we were, when we were chatting about it, but she's kind of like an inverted Tom Cullen. Um, she yeah. functions the way that Tom Cullen does in the sense of, of in the novel. She has these kind of, it's not quite, you know, pseudo-catatonic, aphastic, it's a little unclear what's going on moments mm-hmm. of uh, just kind of spacing out a little bit. And, and in the stand, Tom Cullen does that, and he like channels god essentially right right? you know Mm -hmm. and there's this weird thing going on that we talked about there and we're going to talk about in other stephen king novels about associating a kind of uh uh disabled character with a heart of gold Mm -hmm. right with this kind of numinous whatever right Mm -hmm. in stephen king's novels they just have access to some other thing going on and what's really odd about annie wilkes is that she has that part of it right Mm -hmm. like she is, and, and, and I'm not saying this as, in, in, as a thing that I believe, right? But I think in the Stephen King imaginary, or at least the way she's written in the kind of trope, she is an incomplete person. Yes. Right? She is not a full human being. Mm-hmm. Um, and where Tom Cullen is kind of written in the same way, but what, uh, what fills him out is that he is a good person, right, mm-hmm. in, in his heart. And also, the numinous speaks through him. Nothing speaks through Annie Wilkes, right? There is a void there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it, she's just empty. Like, so she's incomplete and unfulfillable. You know, mm-hmm. as a kind of character, as this kind of weird little thing to puppet around. She, you, you know, she doesn't have psychology. She's not three dimensional in any kind of way. Um, she has a desire to read the uh, Better Misery final novel, uh, and she has a desire to torture Paul Sheldon and that's kind of it right I mean that's that's her two poles that she bounces back and forth from um she's kind of like the monster from the crate a little bit yeah yeah <laughs> uh yeah so like more on the Tom Cullen thing because how I put yeah, this yeah, together absolutely. was like uh they're both they're both sizable right right much right. is made of their size and their strength uh they talk in basically the same way in the same way that not that uh like they are they're notable as uh, people who repeat certain phrases right they have like very specific uh strange like idioms or whatever that they'll repeat um and they're they're both kind you of dirty cur- bird. Yeah, yes, right. And they're both they both speak in a kind of um well, aw shucks, I'm just a I'm just a country person, right, kind of way. Uh but as you say, uh and as I was like sort of working through this, like, you know, uh, uh when Tom has these moments where he goes like catatonic or whatever, he becomes God's Tom in the language of that novel, and then like God speaks through him. And for Annie, it's just uh how it's described by Paul is like she just went away. And she'll just like go quiet, she'll stop, and she'll stare into the distance for a minute. And then she'll just suddenly start talking again, uh, as if uh, she doesn't even know that she's lost time. So yeah, exactly what you're saying. Like she, when she goes out, like Tom goes out, she doesn't go to God. She goes nowhere, right? There is nothing there. It is, it is emptiness. It is vacuity. Uh, and so there's that. And then there's also, um, this really interesting thing that happens through Paul writing his new misery novel, which ends up being about like the characters having to go uh, to Africa and like uh, encounter some tribe that uh, worships as God uh, or rather as a goddess, like this like swarm of rare mutant bees or something. Um, 
and uh <laughs> because because the the novel his like paul sheldon's just you know to shortcut this part because it will come up again mm-hmm. uh so as you said earlier right he kills misery in his last published novel mm-hmm. annie wilkes hates it and so what he figures out in a weird bit of co-writing with annie wilkes is that uh misery is stung by a bee and has an allergic reaction to it mm-hmm. and so that sets off this whole kind of genre plot to figure that out uh, right. So she's not dead. She's just kind of like, uh, um, uh, God, what is it? The fall of the house of ushered. Right. 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 <laughs> right. She gets buried alive. And yeah. like it, it it's, a, a, I mean, and Paul comments on this, right. It's not just an adventure, like a historical romance adventure. Now it is a Gothic novel. Right. Um, uh, so she gets freed and yeah, and they go off to, to Africa to, to meet these bees. Um, and Paul is like clearly like working uh, his feelings about Annie into his manuscript, which we get to read in in bits and pieces. Right? We we like uh, we it, like the font changes because it's like it becomes a typewriter font, and the typewriter has a missing in. So you get these pages of reading his manuscript with all the in like in in typescript, but with all the ins written in by hand, which is kind of kind of a neat touch. I like that. Um, but uh. You you go through all of this until we get like uh, the scene in Africa is that there's this like giant stone like idol or face of a goddess carved into a mountainside, I guess. Uh, And within it is the hive of bees. And in the center of the hive of bees is like the grotesque, massive queen bee. Uh, and because Paul has spent the last however much of the the novel thinking of Annie as kind of like stone-like as an idol, like like this is one of the first things he thinks about when he comes to and sees her, right? He thinks of her as a stone idol in an H. Ryder Haggard novel, um, which is what he ends up folding into to kind of this genre plot that he's got going. Um, uh, so he's like taking that... And then uh, in the same way that we saw in It, right, we we get this, like, move where here is the evil that you see, and then here is the evil behind the evil, right? Within Annie is kind of this uh, seething insectile thing that right. is uh, sort of symbolic of, uh, like, it is... Uh, it, it is literally a symbol, right, in the novel, um, but in some way, right, the, the symbol is positioned as being more apt as kind of like getting at like what is the basic substrate of this person or of this evil. It is insectile. It is hostile. It is evil, unthinking. This is also a, a something that we see in, in The Shining, right, where the overlook is is thought of as a giant wasp nest. Um, so uh, Annie is both like big physical like bodily kind of thing and she is also in Paul's mind at least or like through the the device of the interior novel um this kind of uh grotesque feminine like queen pregnant thing right a, a sort of head of a colony of similar but lesser things uh which if you want to go like full-on allegorical right there's there's something here about like uh, uh Annie is the queen of all fans maybe um, well, and reproductive, but not directly reproductive, too, right? Like, uh, in in the sense of, like, it's not a, a den of wolves, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, with, like, a kind of, uh, you know, a, a pack that is produced out of one uh, mother creature, right? This is so much, so similar to the uh, Night Shift Rat Warren, yes. too, right? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There's the, the, the big monster, the boss monster with all its minions is a Stephen King thing, right? right. He, he, <laughs> he likes the idea of that. Look, we all do. It's fun, right? Uh-huh. The big mutant uh, rat bat. But 
The uh, but there's something going on with that too, right? Where it's it's the swarm that is terrifying here, and the thing that is at the center of the swarm. It's not like there's a matrilineal production here. It's it's a different way of thinking, kind of uh, community or reproduction, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They don't need her to continue to be dangerous, and she does not directly produce them, I guess. But but this is all tied up too. I mean, he comes to that because he keeps thinking of her as an idol in an H. Ryder Haggard novel. Yes. Um. H. Ryder Haggard, if people aren't aware, wrote, wrote books like um, uh, um, big Solomon's. one is she. <laughs> yeah, she is the big one. Uh, but but King Solomon's Mines is the other one, I think. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, H. Ryder Haggard uh, is um, late nineteenth century adventure novelist, adventure uh, uh, imperial novelist too, right? So you know you can read. I've talked about this on a few shows, but uh, the John Ryder's novel. Hold on, uh, uh, not not novel, but Jean Ryder's book, um, the Emer- colonialism and the emergence of science fiction, which is like a huge book in science fiction studies, really important one. But but he just kind of traces like where did science fiction come from? And a huge place where it emerges from is the uh, colonialist imperialist novels of the late nineteenth century. So mm-hmm. people who are writing these adventure stories about fantastic other places and a lot of h rider haggard's novels uh take place in you know quote-unquote darkest africa right it's that imaginary mm-hmm. um but then they have these like kind of science what we would now consider science fiction kind of turns to them right so ancient races of people lost tribes things like that you know mm-hmm. the idea that there is a hidden evil power beneath the thing that that the imperial powers is encountering right so um, that that they're it, it implicitly justifies this kind of colonialist and uh, genocidal desire, right? That mm-hmm. there is something there that needs to be supplanted, and it gets allegoricized into, you know, uh, warlocks, you know, magic, things like that. Um, but you know, writer and many other people, you know, read this as a pretty straightforward allegory of the dominative and kind of uh, us versus them logic that the empire has operates on, right? That justifies mm-hmm. itself. Whatever has to be done in the colony, whatever has to be done in the in the extractive instance, is justifiable because what could be there, right? Know, is, is kind of the what if justifies quite a bit of uh, what they do. So, uh, you know, in, in, in documentation and that shows up culturally in the fiction in a slightly different way, mm-hmm. but, uh, but yeah, so it's a, you know, kind of an odd fit for that to be the way that Annie Wilkes is perceived by Paul Sheldon. Um, uh, you know, as this racialized, I mean, it's explicitly a racialized figure, Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, this power beneath the power of the thing that must be tamed and destroyed, um, from the late 19th century. And it's so ambiguous that it's, it's hard to know what to do with it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. but, but rather, I think more important just to note, like that is the lineage and you got to figure out what to do with that. Right. Like it's such a, it's such a strange pull. It's such a strange thing for Paul to be thinking about. And again, maybe it wouldn't be strange if we had any sort of sense for like, like what Paul likes to read or what his real like specific goals are as a writer. And when I say that, like Paul is sort of underdeveloped as a character, this is what I mean is like, I like, well, I mean, Bill Denbro like has a whole friggin Ayn Rand style monologue about what he (laughs) thinks about, uh, uh, you know, what's cool in fiction. Right. Right. Um, but like in, in the next book in Tommy knockers, Bobby Anderson has kind of like just this historical trajectory of like, how does she come to write Westerns of all things? Right. Right. 
Um, I totally forgot she was a writer in that novel, but you're you're correct. Right. Yeah. Like we get we get kind of like her history coming up through like college and how she ends up writing westerns. And so uh like you know, there's there's a sense to these uh people as characters who have like um histories interacting with fiction and implicitly of course like we get this with paul like we know he's someone who's reading lots of h writer haggard which seems to make sense uh, sort of tangentially as someone who's writing these misery novels um but not a whole lot is is made of it uh and it feels uh i mean i guess at first blush it can feel very strange for king to be pulling this out uh but as you are saying right this is this is kind of like uh the the birth of uh contemporary genre fiction right and uh, as i put in the show doc like the the thing to understand here uh for me at least is that this is king pointing out his like predecessors right king is pointing at popular yeah. novelists who he sees as uh, kind of his forebears um and also not really looking at them critically because he ends up reproducing all of these racialist assumptions, uh, not only within like the story of misery itself, uh, sort of as in its kind of metaphorized form, but then like the the novel that Paul writes is straight up just like racist as all hell. Right, <laughs> right. It's just it's just a nineteenth century adventure novel in the end. Right, and, and I mean, and and Paul's entire thing, right? I mean, you know, it's it is Regency romance. Uh, stuff with all of the kind of class fantasies associated with it, right? You know, mm-hmm. there's a servant class, right? Mm-hmm. Um, some of whom uh, there's like one black man, right? Uh, yes. Once they're in Africa, they have there's like this uh, uh, supporting character I think named Hezekiah, who is a black man, and uh, I, there's a point where Paul thinks of him as like uh, simple but amusing or something, right, and it's like right. oof. Well, yeah, and, and, you know, I think there's a thing here of, like, how... It, the, and the thing that does line up here with Stephen King is the way that Paul Sheldon thinks about his fiction really does sound like the way that Stephen King talks about his fiction in... Especially in all that stuff I read around it, right? You know, mm-hmm. uh, for Stephen King, it's a lot of little dudes you're piloting around, and the little dudes do stuff, and it's more about what the payoff is for the reader. You know, this is him talking about being the McDonald's of fiction, right? Like... He wants the thing that makes the most people excited or grossed out or whatever. He, you know, there's not uh, a strong desire, I don't think, in King for psychological realism or whatever, right? And so I think when Paul Sheldon is talking about, you know, his character types in particular, right? Um, you know, it, it, there's a lot of this novel that's dedicated to him, like, thinking about the work of fiction writing, which is really fascinating. But, mm-hmm. you know, uh, he doesn't consider any of these characters in the Misery novel to be anything other than little dudes to pilot around and, like, mm-hmm. make bink into one another. And that aligns really heavily with what Stephen King uh, at the time in the 80s is saying about his fiction. And I, in some ways, I agree with, right? It's just like uh, you end up making an art object in which the thing's binged around and then you have to talk about the art object as an art object, right? It's it's not, in fact, McDonald's <laughs> because people <laughs> read it and they talk about it for eternity, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it does something else, right? Uh, it, it's right. not um, forgotten and consumed, um, but uh, or it's not in its consumption. It is not forgotten, right? It is something else happens with it, but mm-hmm. uh, but yeah. So I think that's really a fascinating kind of thing. And, and weirdly enough, while there are not a lot of alliances directly between Paul Sheldon and King, I do actually think the art of fiction here is might as well be King talking, based on the other interviews I've read. Mm-hmm. Um. 
You want to talk about some torture porn? Uh, sure. Uh, so here's some things that happened to Paul. Uh, he's got to drink a mop bucket. You know, this was the part that really got me the most. Really? I, th- I The it's rest like of the- it is mm-hmm. bad, but like gory bad. You know, mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. a different universe of bad. But yeah, she like spills soup and then like washes it off the wall and makes him drink the bucket. Yeah. And this is really when he's like, uh-oh, <laughs> yeah. I'm in trouble. Yeah, it's like one of the first, like, I mean, it's 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 the first, like, weird thing she does, you know, accepting, like, stealing him out of his car and putting him in her home. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that's the, like, uh, Paul, up until that point, is, like, thinking there's something wrong with this lady. And that is the moment where he's like, ah, shit. <laughs> Uh, and it's, this is also kind of when he really understands that he is hooked on the painkillers that she's been giving him. Mm-hmm. Novril. Novril. That's right. I'm glad that, I'm glad you, I definitely would never have come up with that. But yeah, I mean, he is, she's got like a million sample packs of Novril, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that she stole from work. She was a, a nurse at some point mm-hmm. and, uh, she's just got like a shitload of it and uh she is feeding it to him constantly and so he's like hooked on him mm-hmm. uh, in a in a biological and serious way and so yeah he's he's drinking the mop bucket to wash him down and there's a lot of shame in this novel mm-hmm. you know i i don't really i'm trying to think of other moments in king where shame is such a powerful motivator right i mean i guess you can yeah. read that into uh henry bowers going insane mm-hmm. in uh in it you know that that is probably born out of shame um you know both with his father and like the the encounter with um the patrick hockstetter right maybe that's involved mm-hmm. i'm trying to think of other moments and weirdly enough that shame is a thing i associate with king a lot and maybe that's just novels that are coming along yeah. um but uh you know, maybe is it uh, Bill Gardner? Is is that the character in Tommy Knockers? Yeah, yeah, guard, guard. Yeah. Uh, he he's got a lot of shame going on in that. So maybe this is maybe this is where it's emerging. I guess, but mm-hmm. I mean, there's just so many words in this novel that are dedicated to to Sheldon thinking about how ashamed he is of his addiction, right? Mm-hmm. Like straight up, just no no bones about it. Mm-hmm. And like his his dismay at himself for like the things he is willing to do in order to uh, get his fix and survive. And that's part of like, you know, the engine for, for him or for the novel is that getting his fix and surviving are like uh, the same thing, basically. Yeah. <laughs> like because they both mean like be, staying on good terms with Annie. Right. Right. Because he has to compromise constantly because she says, hey, you got to write this new misery novel. And then just uh, scene after scene of uh, bothering him. Yep. (laughs) Right? Yeah, I mean, that's, like, once that happens, I mean, that's interesting, actually, right? That's some some of the interesting stuff uh, for me is that moment of, so, he's been captured, she's got him in the house, she ends up getting the paperback of Misery's Child, uh, and that's when he puts together, like, oh, no. She because she hasn't she hasn't read it yet. She tells him and this is when he realizes like, oh, no, she's going to read it and she's going to find out I killed misery. That's not going to be good. And you know what? It's not good. Um, And that's uh, when she says you're going to have to write me a new one because it was uh, unfair or whatever. Um, I just want to read this, actually, because Mm -hmm. uh, it's such a well, 
it's um uh, uh gesturing at our other show homestuck made this world where this is going to become uh more and more what homestuck does right uh and we're going to be talking about that over there uh it is an illustration of how uh texts teach you how to be a reader or at least try to right or at least in this case uh or in the case of homestuck when when an author really starts front loading like habits of thinking or habits of mind in their readership that uh, they find annoying or uh bad or counterproductive or they don't like dealing with um so uh uh She's really upset with Paul about misery dying in childbirth. And he says, Annie, in 1871, women frequently died in childbirth. Misery gave her life for her husband and her best friend and her child. The spirit of misery will always, I don't want her spirit, she screamed, hooking her fingers into claws and shaking them at him as if she would tear his eyes out. I want her. You killed her. You murdered her. And she, you know, uh, hollers at him a whole bunch. She's saying, you killed killed her. And she's saying, I, he's saying, I didn't. Um, he's saying, I didn't kill her. She just died died um she just slipped away uh and then she says you must think i was born yesterday in my job i saw dozens of people die hundreds now that i think about it sometimes they go screaming and sometimes they go in their sleep they just slip away the way you said sure but characters in stories do not just slip away god takes us when he thinks it's time and a writer is god to the people in a story he made them up just like god made us up and no one can get hold hold of God to make him explain. All right, okay, but as far as misery goes, I'll tell you one thing, you dirty bird. I'll tell you that God just happens to have a couple of broken legs, and God just happens to be in my house eating my food, and, and, and then she, she goes blank then, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and she, like, stares at the wall for a little bit, and then she, uh, comes back and says, I think I better go. I don't think it's wise for me to stay with you, and then she, like, locks him in the bedroom and, like, leaves the house for two days or something. Yeah, those are my favorite, like, conceptual sections of the book. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, actually, it's kind of where uh, Paul Sheldon actually gets some time to think about not the novel. Mm -hmm. uh, but, like, when she is just, like, I, I, she knows she is going to harm him. And mm -hmm. so she just leaves for a long time. Mm -hmm. She goes to her, like, special place or something, her thinking place. Uh, Annie's laughing place. Laughing place. God, what a thing. What a terrifying thing. Uh-huh. It's good stuff. Which is like a little thing where she just chills out and doesn't kill Paul Sheldon there. <laughs> uh, but yeah, she's like knocking him in the knees and stuff too. I mean, his legs uh -huh. are shattered and they're yeah. not going to heal correctly uh, mm -hmm. because uh, she doesn't care about that. <laughs> and she like splinted them, but she doesn't really know what she's doing. And so she she disables him on purpose, right? I mean, that that's the, the thing going on here. Mm -hmm. Uh is that she knows from the outset that any kind of uh, actual medical help will remove him from her control. And so she sets his leg in such a way that they will not heal in a way that allow him to walk. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think there's a lot going on here, too, that we could uh, we're not going to get into this. But right. The kind of um, purposeful fixation of disability and the mm. inability to walk as torture uh-huh uh you know i i don't think we have to walk too far down that hallway to understand how uh no no bueno that is yeah uh and especially since his arc is and he got to walk again uh-huh right uh which is like the completion of the human the physical completion and the emotional completion at the end of the novel are the same thing 
mm-hmm. um, you know, being able to walk and uh, being able to write are the same thing. Mm-hmm. It is ad break time here in the middle-ish of the episode, uh, depending on where I found a good break point, and that means it is time to talk to you all about uh, what Just King Things is a part of and where it comes from. Uh, it is part of the Range Touch Network, uh, and Just King Things is not the only show that we do here. It's not the only type of content that we do. Uh, if you want to know more about Range Touch, you can find out about us at rangetouch.com, but also twitter.com slash rangetouch, and that's where you'll find kind of a central hub for all of our ongoing projects. Uh, you know, there are other shows that Cameron and I do include Game Study Study Buddies about uh, reading books of academic game studies and uh, making them sort of useful and accessible to people who maybe don't have the time to dig deep into academic texts, uh, but also uh, sort of more in line with kind of the just king things vibe of things. We have Homestuck Made This World, where Cameron and I are reading through the webcomic Homestuck and having extensive discussions about uh, what that comic thinks about, let's say, fandom and what good and fa- good and bad fans are and and what good and bad fan behaviors might be uh lots of really cool resonance with the discussion we're having here in this episode uh we also have more video game centric focused shows uh uh Mages and Murder Dads, where Cameron and Danny are working through games in the Baldur's Gate lineage. They just finished up uh, talking through um, Icewind Dale, I believe. Uh, And then Cameron and I have Too Much Future, where we're playing through the games in the Fallout series. And very soon to the time that you are hearing this, uh, we will be starting our playthrough of Fallout 4. Um, So that's some stuff that you can look forward to, all from Range Touch. Again, rangetouch.com or twitter.com slash rangetouch. But if you want even more than that, uh, you can support us at patreon.com slash ranged touch, where just even, you know, a couple dollars a month or, you know, it's going to help us do what we do, continue to make time to play these games, read these books, do the research, uh, buy the things that we need to do the research, especially when we're talking about these old uh, newsletters from 1986. Uh, that, that helps us out, but also you get something in return. Uh, you'll get bonusodes for, well, in the case of Just King Things, uh, a bonusode this month about the 1990 film Misery, uh, during which we're going to be joined by a special guest whose identity I don't think we've revealed. But We haven't. We're going to do it right now in the ad break. Maddie Myers is going to be on the episode. Oh, Maddie's going to be with us. Yeah, uh, Triple uh, Click and the Mutant Age and all those other great things. Mm-hmm. Uh, she'll be joining us to talk about Rob Reiner's Misery. Uh, and that's not the only bonus episode. We've recorded one for basically every episode of this show, with the exception of, I think, maybe the first one. So if you want to hear us talk about uh, uh, Stephen King films or kind of weird Stephen King filmic projects, uh, we've got a whole archive of that ready and waiting for you. And there's also bonusodes for Homestuck Made This World uh, and a monthly podcast uh, that Cameron and Danny do. Uh, another thing that you can do to help us in addition to all of that is rating us on your podcast platform of choice and in particular giving us a good review a five-star review and if you leave a five-star review that is also funny on apple podcasts uh then there's a chance that cameron will read your review out loud on air like so we got uh, a bunch of great reviews recently. In fact, I'm, I'm going to have a little bit of a backlog coming up because, you know, it, they kind of come in waves. We get a lot at one time and then not a few for a while and then a lot at one time. I will say someone left a rude review and you don't mm. want to give too much air to rude reviews. And I won't, mm-hmm. but I disagree. Rude views, if you rude will. Rude views. 
This is my new segment called Rude Views. <laughs> it's like, uh, <laughs> I just complain about stuff. But they left a rude review, and I'm going to say this. Shout out to everyone who, after they left this rude review, which seems to like fundamentally misunderstand, um, I don't know, the majority of what we do on the show. Uh, after that, many other people left a review to say that review was wrong. And I appreciate those reviews. I'm going to have to look at this because it is so hard to conceptualize. You, you what should. Is going I'll show it here. to you. You haven't seen okay. it. I protect you from this. Uh huh. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're a darling little boy. I can't. That's right. It would. It would break my little heart. It would. But uh, I'll. I'll reveal it to you later. But so we got some really great reviews. Uh, let me read two here uh, really quickly, and we got a bunch more coming up. So if you've left a nice review recently uh, uh, or a funny review recently, I'll get to it probably. This is from Resident Redacted. This has it all. Looking for a podcast of Stephen King's work and publication order that can go from academic discussions to, of meaning to weird little goblin noises in under a minute. Your search is over. A <laughs> highlight of my month every month. <laughs> That's very funny to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> someone says, uh, this is Alex H2WF. Says five stars for the podcast, one star for Hey Jude. The absolute <laughs> mids of Beatles songs. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, we got we got a lot of people thinking us we're working through stuff, but they're not particularly funny uh, in terms of not having to read the thing. Mm-hmm. This, but I do want to this. So Jimmy Dinks left a review that is, <laughs> uh, which is a great name by the way, and they give a really good like review review. It's not super funny, but the ending they have a, a paragraph here at the bottom that says. My only criticism is the missed opportunity of keeping a peeing pants tally for each book. Many characters pee their pants or almost do. I counted at least a dozen in the stand and many others elsewhere. And that's that's notable. And I will start keeping track of that. It is true. Have, this... <laughs> I've not noticed that at all. <laughs> um it is it is kind of a thing that I have thought about. <laughs> it's like I haven't I, thought I, about I, it. I want to keep up with it. I, so thanks, Jimmy Dinks, for actually improving the show. I am curious about the peen pants tally in the Tommy Knockers. I'm going to be on the lookout for peed pants. Okay, because that's true. In Misery, Paul Sheldon talks about having to pee his pants or almost peeing his pants or does pee his pants like three times. Yep. Uh, so mm-hmm. it is a thing. Um, and, yeah. Uh, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure if that was what our audience would want, but like now that we've heard it from Jimmy Dinks, like we will, we will come clean and, and face up to the facts of the peeing pants tally. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I don't, we don't maybe have to tally all them all. I do think that'd be funny, but I am interested in just noting it when it happens, if because it sounds like it's a king thing. It is. It is. You it know? really is. It's something uh, I associate with him. Yeah, well, I do too. I know. You know, here this is in the ad break, so you know it's good content. <laughs> in desperation. At the very beginning, when he sings a little song about peeing, uh-huh. it's been locked in my head since I was like 12 years old. Oh my I think God. about it all the time. <laughs> it's like, it's something, this might not be the exact right thing, right? But something to the effect of, because it's been a long time since I read that novel. No matter how you jump, mm-hmm. wiggle or dance. The last two drops go in your pants. Yep. Is that it? It's something close, right? <laughs> it's yeah. It's like no matter how much you shake, no matter how much you dance, the very last drop always goes in your pants. Yeah. It's it's, it's there yeah. We go. There we go. This is what you listen to the ad break for. People who mm-hmm. skip through that thirty seconds of the time or whatever, they miss the good stuff. Uh-huh. Of course, this would come up in the desperation episode in like a year, a year and a half, somewhere in there. All right. Anyway, thanks so much for listening, everybody. Thanks so much for leaving nice reviews. If you want to counteract a uh, uh, rude review. 
Go leave us a five-star review. If it's funny, I'll read a bit of it on the show. And I got a, a couple other really funny ones, too, uh, coming up in the next episode. So thanks so much. And uh, back to the episode. But uh, I don't know other stuff that happens in the middle of the book. That's the kind of weird thing about the book is it's the same thing over and over for a long time. Well, uh, I mean, the the thing there, right, about Annie saying that, like, the writer is God and God only takes you at right. a certain time. And right, like, you know, this sort of like interesting, like theology of writing and reading that she's working out um, that I think on the one hand we're supposed to take is obviously sort of like overly simplistic, right? Insisting on kind of the... Uh, uh, like the the continuity or sort of like the firmness of a fictional world as if it is a real world uh, but also it's notable or like worth you know re-emphasizing that from I think the meta logic of the novel um, she's sort of right that Paul like Paul is being disingenuous when he says she just slipped away he did in fact like aim to kill misery that was his goal and it is what he did uh, and this follows after an earlier scene uh, where he tries to start writing the novel and he just retcons that Misery died. He's just, it's just like a beginning, it's like a new new novel and it's like, ah, like, wasn't it awful when we thought Misery was dead? But now she's alive again and we're all happy. And Annie doesn't like that either because it's not playing fair. It's not playing by the rules and she goes into this whole like sort of uh, uh, memory of watching uh, adventure serials. Yeah, I actually when, really like this. Yeah, when she was younger and uh, uh, at the film, and when she would go to the movies with her brother, um, uh, they would show you know adventure serials, and I think it's like it's it's not the Rocketeer because uh, I think it's that something was, like that. Yeah, I, I don't know what the uh, I don't know what the actual thing. I don't know if it's a real thing. Is what I'm yeah. saying. Uh, but she like you know it's like a weekly adventure serial. And she watches one week and like it leaves the hero in this really tight. They always end on cliffhangers. And there's one that ends with um, him in like a trolley car that's like running to the ocean or something. And then the last rocket man is yes, rocket man. Uh, And uh, it like (laughs) the the trolley like uh, goes over the edge of a cliff and like hits some rocks and explodes. (laughs) (laughs) And then it's like tune in next week to find out what happened. Um and how the next week serial starts up is that it's the exact same scene, except it shows you uh, like a scene that you didn't see before where he gets out of the thing before it goes over the cliff and explodes. And she has an entire kind of conniption fit in the theater where they, they like get kicked out uh, because she's saying that like that's not how it happened. Right. Like you changed it. That's not fair. Uh, and so she, you know, reactivates in this way and like throws that back at Paul saying, no, you have to come up with uh uh like you you killed her and now you have to bring her back to life you can't just ignore the thing that you did and that's what you said it's this interesting moment of co-writing where uh she forces paul into a position where he has to learn to re-respect his genre fiction Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> he is he is cowed by by the uh, the audience. I mean, that's the kind of interesting thing, right? Is she gets to become like the every fan. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I don't I don't know, like the the fan that you're responsible to. Yeah. Um, the other thing I'll say here, too, is that there is something so fascinating to me about how this is presented. I mean, it's Annie Wilkes telling you this. Mm-hmm. She's torturing him. Mm-hmm. She's a bad person. Mm-hmm. Right? Like in the moral fable of the story. Right. <laughs> She's not good. 
And right. I mean, we can read it in two ways. One is like this kind of um, uh, disguised meaning or like this uh, thing we can read into it, which is like, well, she's the the proper fan. You're responsible to her and you got to deliver the thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Like she's the person who's reading the book and he knows she's right. I mean, that's the thing. Paul Sheldon says that a few times. Right. He knows that she is right. Mm -hmm. in his heart about what she's saying even the fact that she's torturing him right Mm -hmm. the worst person can still be right you know it's that it's the twitter image that poor (laughs) guy uh but on the other side right there's like i it's you know this kind of criticism right where he's like well i it's not you know these aren't real like i just (laughs) i don't you know it's not this kind of thing where i'm like piloting these these like real human beings around and making them do i'm not like god right? right you know they don't have independent spirit for me. Mm-hmm. I didn't invent them, and then they do what they're doing. I write all the words down, so what are you talking about? Let me tell you, I'm not going to get too into it, but we read a novel later on in Stephen King's career in which an author is literally God to the characters, mm-hmm. and his vi- every word impacts their metaphysical being in the universe. Right. Well, like and the Annie Wilkes's metaphysics get written into the metaphysics of the Dark Tower. Well, uh, a, a thing we love to say on this show is that evil defeats itself, right? And I have talked about before uh, how right, uh, right, you know right, this is right. like like folded into kind of like it's a very sort of uh, specifically like Christian, and I think I would say like specifically like Protestant, but also I think it's it's there in Catholicism too. Um, but a particular kind of Protestant uh, providentialist uh, way of understanding the world that evil will inevitably defeat itself. The counterpoint to this, not counterpoint, but sort of the second half of this, right? The same thing stated in a different way is that despite itself, evil will often accomplish the aims of the good. Right. It will aim like the devil will aim at uh, tempting you to sin uh, in order for you to ultimately have a stronger relationship with God. And that's part of what I think is happening here with Annie, right, is that she is evil, uh, but she also like she's the left hand of God a little bit. Right. She's the she's the sock puppet God uses when he needs to teach you a really hard lesson. Right. <laughs> ah! <laughs> uh, um. God, what a thing. Yeah. Um, things about Annie Wilkes, I guess. I, I do want to talk about a couple more like events in the novel because I think they're fun or like interesting to talk about. I mean, they're not fun, but they're mm-hmm. interesting to talk about. Uh, but anything about her as a character? I mean, she's like really thinly drawn. So it's kind of hard, you know, other than Dirty Bird and, you know, the uh, the kind of speech her patter, I guess, for lack of a mm-hmm. better word. Other than that, there's not a lot to her, like as a person. Mm-hmm. Um. I mean, uh, uh, she's, I mean, this is, it, she's a rerun at Carrie White's mom, right, in, in uh, one way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this is a character type that King has touched on a little bit before. She's also kind of like Eddie Kasprak's mom, right? She's, uh, uh, I mean, she's she is a, uh, a fat woman that King finds uh, sort of both physically gross and kind of like uh, uh, characterologically uh, deficient, right? Um, and so this is, of course, bound up in a whole lot of misogyny and, uh, uh, you know, we've talked a little bit before and I'm surprised we haven't even mentioned it, uh, up to this point that this was going to start life as a Bachman novel. 
And uh, the Bachman novels tend to be more explicitly like psychoanalytic than the mainline King for whatever reason. And yeah. so uh, here we have Annie who um, basically like uh, uh, through through this like nurse, uh, this like you know fucked up nurse kind of situation, like reinfantilizes Paul and becomes like an evil mother to him. Right. He's like a little baby trapped in the back room and he's like dependent on her because he's hooked on these drugs and. Uh, all of his kind of like disgust with her physically about how much she eats and how her breath smells and how big she is uh, and all of his resentment sort of boiling up in him about the fact that he is dependent on her uh, has all, you know, the it's misogynist in in kind of the broad sense and then sort of like the specific mechanism mechanisms of it are this like psychoanalytic misogyny of uh she has ruined his independence as a man and become like this demonic second mother. And in fact, this gets uh, really like emphasized when he finds her scrapbook, which we can talk about. Um, but what you find out about Annie is that she's a serial killer. She has this pattern as a nurse where she, uh, well, she actually, she's Roland LeBay also. <laughs> Uh, well, she's Roland LeBay, uh, and she is uh, uh, the town of Derry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because this section, I, you know, I, I really like. This is my favorite part of the. This is my favorite kingism, right? I mean, I'm just going right. to get out ahead of it. But it's just a chapter where he reads through all the awful things that, that Annie, Wilkes, Annie Wilkes has ever done that she keeps in a convenient scrapbook. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, she is this kind of, she's an ancient evil somehow. <laughs> right. Uh, she like sets fire to like her apartment building where her family lives when she's a kid and like kills their neighbors. Uh, and then she ends up like killing her father. It's interesting. Like she has this, uh, uh, like fixation on her mother that kind of like disappears right her own mother because she talks about like how her mother was a saint and so on but you never really find out what happened to mom um uh so yeah so she starts out as kind of rolling the bay she becomes a nurse she goes to a hospital and paul notices like in her scrapbook right it's like annie joins the hospital uh, a few months later someone at the hospital dies right uh, and it's usually someone who was hurt or is in an accident and uh you know they passed away after a long illness or a short illness or whatever and then suddenly annie's at a new hospital and she works her way westward um until she messes up when she's in colorado she gets married the marriage doesn't work out and uh, something something that happened in the marriage, you know, implicitly uh, made her messy because she becomes the head of the maternity ward at a hospital and she starts killing babies, uh, which this is this inc- whole like turn here. Right. And like mm-hmm. Paul Sheldon thinking about like, what was that marriage? Uh-huh. Like, what did that man who she married think when he started encountering Annie Wilkes moment to moment and mm-hmm. having the same encounters that Paul Sheldon is having, like what happened? And, and it is so unlike King to not go down the hole, mm-hmm. right? Like you can imagine a different version of this novel that would read exactly the same way and would be just as Kingy or whatever that would have like, a five-page letter that her husband wrote and tried to send to his friend talking about what <laughs> Annie Wilkes was up to, right? Like, that would fit right in the middle of the segment. And Stephen King does not do that. And that, that to me, is like, that's the difference between him at his worst and him at his best. Like, this mm-hmm. is him knowing exactly how much to give you and then pulling back, which he can do so well sometimes, but it's not necessarily what his instinct would always be. But sorry, sorry to interrupt. She oh. starts killing babies in the right. maternity ward. 
Right. And so she gets um, caught for this and she goes to trial for it. uh, But they don't have like all the evidence is circumstantial. She's actually really good at uh, covering her tracks. And so she gets off on the charges, but she becomes uh, uh, an outcast in her town. Right. Everyone knows her as like the nurse who uh, killed people. And they called her like the dragon lady in the papers or whatever. Um, Yeah. What's what's that? What's the dragon lady part? Uh, she's like a, I mean, I understand that like the phrase dragon lady has a very different connotation, I think, or like a a generally more racialized connotation. Uh, I don't know if that's that's what's operating here. Yeah. So that's my familiarization. So, so here's, here's like the wiki summary for it, right? Dragon lady is usually a stereotype of certain East Asian and occasionally South Asian and or Southeast Asian women as strong, deceitful, domineering, mysterious, and often sexually alluring. So I'm familiar with that, like, stereotype, right? You know, shows up in adventure serials, all kinds of stuff like that, right? You know, it's kind of like the pirate queen from Conan. Mm-hmm. Similar deal, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I get that. That's not this. No. Uh, and I think I think this might be a genuinely just sort of like an accident, right? That Steve oh, maybe right. knew that phrase but didn't quite know the true resonance. Or he just like stumbled upon Dragon Lady as like something to call her, at, at, you know, as a serial killer moniker. Um, because, you know, she – in the killing of the children specifically, right, she – that is like the fulfillment of the evil mother, uh, form right the the what young in his uh, archetypes calls the devouring mother uh uh like the the mother who is secretly a monster who like shuts down her children or like entraps them or whatever but uh this is also like hugely by the way uh you know gotta be myself here for a minute uh hugely how witches are understood in europe uh throughout like you know the middle ages into early modernity right the witch is like the evil mother right the woman who kills children rather than giving birth to and nurturing them right um so uh i think right that this is just king trying to come up with like oh what can i call like uh this character that uh emphasizes that she is evil and also that she is a woman uh let's lean on uh dragon in kind of maybe a more you know european medieval sense right dragon is like a monster that uh uh you know sits on its pile of skulls and gold or whatever Hmm. i think i don't know but yeah no like as you say right that that's a phrase that has a very specific and different meaning i think for most people yeah i've spent a lot of time being like how does this fit together and then i just didn't figure it out Mm mm-hmm um so yeah that happens uh uh there's all these scenes of paul like you know like when annie leaves of him trying to figure out like how to get out of the room how to get himself into his wheelchair and sort of go around and find ways to escape he finds out that her phone has been disabled or like she's she is rather she has disabled her own phone because she is such a a a target of like ridicule and harassment in her community um and she like has locks on all of the doors. Uh, her house is uh, filled with like little knickknacks and bric-a-brac. There's a point later on, like we find out that Annie, in addition to like having the program of a serial killer, is kind of like cyclical. She's called like manic depressive, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she has like these depressive cycles where uh, she just suddenly like for no reason in particular, right? Paul doesn't do anything to make her mad or whatever, but she just like gets uh, uh, very low, very flat, and she doesn't attend to him in the way that she normally does, and she just like sits in the living room and eats 
food and like leaves the dishes all over and it's like, you know, filthy and disgusting and it's all like half melted ice cream and stuff. Um, so again, all of this, you know, the disgust at the fat woman and her body and her habits and, and, and everything. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, this like the the texture of like being trapped with this woman and like learning uh, uh, her rhythms and then Paul trying to figure out like, well, how do I use that to my advantage? Right. At one point, he's like uh, sneaking Novril out for when she, you know, gets pissy and leaves him uh, so he can like, you know, get his fix. Uh, and he also, I think, hides a butcher knife underneath his uh, mattress. And eventually she finds all of these things. It turns out that she like has known that he's been getting out of the room because she uh, used her hairs to like make little traps like she she like uh, threaded it across the her scrapbook. Uh, and so when he opened the scrapbook, it, it broke the hairs that she used. And so she knew that he's been out, but then also because she's so unwell, uh, she has like put these things like in her barn outside and she is insisting that those are broken too. So he's been like getting out of the house and into the barn. Uh, and it's never clear if, you know, I mean, I mean, this is the point and this is like what Paul thinks is that like. She like the the hairs just fell on their own and she's just like totally unhinged. Uh, but one of the really devious things about mm -hmm. Annie uh, or that like the way that she can sometimes be written uh, is that, you know, you get the sense that sometimes she knows what she's doing. <laughs> she absolutely does. It, right. Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of thing, right, is that it is does she believe she knows what she's doing? Mm -hmm. uh, and and then you know, like the hairs fall on themselves or whatever, right? They break by themselves, whatever that is. Or did she break them herself and then mm -hmm. forget she did it, right? Which is also a, like an an option, right? So does she does is is everything just kind of like stumbling in, into place, or is she deeply calculative? Mm -hmm. um, and I think no matter what, she believes she is deeply calculative, and yes. so so it ends up being the case, right? And she is really good at planning. Uh, and I also really. I, I think some of the most, this is why the book turned from, oh my God, this book is, I think maybe worse than rage to like a pretty good book, like in, you know, mm -hmm. middle of the pack to the lower middle of the pack for me is that she starts saying very explicitly to Paul Sheldon, Hey, if you do anything that will get me caught, I'm going to kill whoever is here. I'm going to kill myself and I'm going to kill you. Mm -hmm. Right. Like she just says it explicitly right mm -hmm. there's a way that like artists all artifice right because there's a little bit of a fun and games thing going on here right mm -hmm. uh and i guess literally a funny games kind of thing going on <laughs> here right where it's a novel yeah. about a novelist trapped right in a novel uh and that becomes this kind of me mediation on form uh and uh you know the work of the novel and the work of, of the writer through the first half of it, but then all that artifice falls away, right? Whereas, like, something like, you know, Hanukkah's film, uh, Funny Games, like, amps it up at the end. You know, the, it, it becomes all-consuming, this kind of meta-media fascination with violence or whatever. It becomes really kind of flat um, and so much more distressing, where she, you know, people show up and she just kills them. Like, mm -hmm. straight up murders them. Right, she, uh, like, uh, uh, stabs a deputy with a cross that she used to bury a cat like she she marked she has a cow that dies and she marks the grave with a cross and then a, uh, a cop shows up looking for paul sheldon and she grabs the uh the wooden cross that she used to mark the grave and she like beats and stabs him to the ground and then because he's still not dead she runs him over with her lawnmower yeah it's very kingy uh i wish that it, i wish that it were a little uh 
more understated, I guess. Yeah. But also, I think this is the third time someone has been killed in a Stephen King thing with a lawnmower. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and I mean, it's specifically like it's a lawn boy, which is the the brand of lawnmower that keeps showing up. In fact, showed up in Rage, right? The bully in oh, Rage when funny, when funny. the narrator like flashes back to when he got like the shit kicked out of him at a birthday party or whatever. It's like a lawn boy, a lawnmower like coming at him is the bully. So... <laughs> fascinating i I don't yeah this is where your memory is so much better than mine but uh <laughs> but you know so it's a little it's going for the gross out right obviously but the i don't know the way that the last third or maybe even quarter becomes like uh i don't know deeply realist in some ways right where, where mm-hmm. the rest of it is this kind of like media thing that invites all these kind of comparisons like there's no allegorical comparisons for the last quarter of the novel it's a dude who's who's working on a book because he becomes addicted to working on the book. Mm-hmm. The book itself becomes a thing that is just as compelling, just as addictive, just as uh, compulsory. Not just because she's making him do it, because he legitimately wants to write this book. Uh, and you can, again, write like, it's not a one-to-one, it's not a thing. But when you've got someone, an author, who says they write 12 pages a day and you know that they're doing that in tandem with a bunch of other addictive things, right? Right. Uh, uh, Cocaine, pill usage, uh, alcohol, right? These are all things that King later talks about that he was doing in the late 80s. And then you have a character who keeps talking about the fact that their physical addiction to drugs is tied up in the work that they're doing with their novel and that the novel itself is a better high, essentially, right? Right. Um, It's hard not to draw those connections there. Um, And he's into it. He's writing Misery's, what, is it Misery's Return? I don't remember the name of the novel. Yes, Misery's Return. Misery's Return. Uh, you know, it's, it's pretty compelling stuff, but I, I mean, the novel itself is terrible. Yes. The novel within the novel is awful. Mm-hmm. Um, he's so I, proud of it though. He's so proud of it. And I do like that. He like kind of turn, turns up the, the heat on it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't talked about the hobbling. No. So after she, I mean, not really after she finds out he's been getting out cause she knows for a while, but after mm-hmm. she confronts him about it, uh, she hobbles him. She, uh, uh, uses her ax and she chops off his foot. Uh, so he yeah. can't. Uh, so he's even less capable of getting around on his own. And then a few weeks later, she actually uh, severs his thumb with a, a, a carving knife. Yeah, both of those are, uh, you know, in the movie, which we'll talk about in the bonus episode. Uh, we haven't recorded that yet. Uh, but uh, in the movie, the hobbling is like the key scene, right? Like, mm-hmm. it, and also notably, not chopping anyone's feet off. Yes. I know right. something about that, but I'll save it for the bonus episode. Oh, please, please save it. Mm-hmm. Uh, check out the bonus episodes at patreon.com slash range touch right now. If you're hearing this, that episode is already out. You can get it for $5 a month. But, uh, but you know, I she, and she explicitly ties it in with mining practices, right? Uh-huh. Right, or, so or actually, I think it's Paul who does that. Wait, no, no, no. She does. No, it's, it's her. Like she, she knows explains this. It. Yeah, yes. Everyone she... knows so much about Africa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they do, yeah. It's diamond mines, I think, that she associates it with, or, or yeah. that's the kind of thing. But right, so there's this other racialized kind of thing going on here, this kind of geographic imaginary that, uh, I, you know, for uh, plugs in. I'm not quite sure. I, I don't know what the output of that is for King, like why I keep going back to this, but... Uh, but she does that and cuts off the foot, but, and that to me, it's the most distressing part of the film, not really the most distressing part of the book. It's in fact, the thumb that really got me. Mm-hmm. 
uh, well, the, it's handled so differently. Like how, how it works right. is like we, we are there for the hobbling, uh, but then it's like a chapter break and we jump forward a couple weeks and suddenly Paul doesn't have a thumb anymore. And we kind of then get it in flashback after he's already made peace with it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's, it's, she's got, it's like an electric, uh, you know, uh, carving knife, like a little reciprocating knife. And she just like comes in. I can't remember why she does it, like what he does to like, um, anger her at that point. Uh, cause it's not, it's not him getting out. It's something to no, do. No, I think he, they disagree about the novel or something. I don't actually remember what yeah. the inciting thing for that is. Yeah. I, it's, it's around the point where she also starts like asking him to just tell her how it ends and he won't do it. Yeah. And also um, saying I could just kill us both right now. Yes. Right. She she starts just openly floating that because it's uh, it's well, before it, it's really weird because this novel is just a bunch of events that occur. It's kind of hard to remember exactly where things happen, but this is before she starts. It's before she leaves for like the week and a half or whatever, right? Um, I can't remember. I don't really remember. I think it's after I I know like what happens, right, is that eventually the machinery that should have been, uh, as we said at the beginning, maybe kicking off a little faster does kick off where uh, they, they find his car because it got washed down from where he where he uh, wrecked and it gets like washed down. But then it's discovered by um, uh, like a helicopter team or something. And so then the manhunt is really on for him. And that's where the first deputy comes to her house trying to, uh, look for Sheldon. And then she kills him. And after that deputy disappears, uh, then it's like the, the Annie Wilkes, uh, uh, like haunted house power hour has started again. Cause like the teenagers from town are coming by and harassing her and the cops keep coming by. And like, and like Paul is like in the back room, um, and he's like promised because the reason she kills the deputy is that he like throws his ashtray through the window and like gets the deputy's attention. Right. And then she says, like, you killed that man, Paul. Like he wouldn't have died if not for you. Um, and so after that, when other cops are showing up, Paul is staying quiet in the back room. Uh, but like he can hear like they keep coming back to question her and Paul like realizes they're just like they are like harassing her as the police. Like they think she knows more than she's saying and they are just coming by to like be a pain to her. And that's where she really starts in on the, you know, if, if you do anything, like I'm going to kill the person who's here, I'm going to kill you and then I'm going to kill myself. Uh, so I, I've gone back and investigated. So uh, that she asks him about, she brings ice cream in and says, why don't you just tell me the end of the novel? Oh, right. She tries to butter him up. Yeah. Right. And he's like, I can't do that. And then they kind of go back and forth and, and it, she, he, he shames her. He basically says like, you're acting like a, like a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he also complains about the typewriter and oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. And then, right. There's kind of this just uh slight that occurs a week later. And then he realizes like after the fact, right. It's kind of weird how time works in the end of this novel, but he realizes after the fact that it was because a week beforehand he had criticized the typewriter that she had cut his thumb off, right? So mm-hmm. there's all these kind of delayed reactions going on here, right? Which ties into the stuff going on earlier, right? That she kind of phases out, goes catatonic, whatever, uh, and uh, and comes back, right? There's this kind of time relay that everything is always in the present for Annie Wilkes mm-hmm. in, the, in terms of like emotion and uh, uh, grievance. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right. You know, there's people keep showing up and, and she, as the pressure uh, amps up on her, she starts telling him all that kind of stuff uh, that she's going to kill him. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so then Paul kind of like makes his break for it. He uh, pretends to burn the Misery manuscript because she made him burn the Fast Cars manuscript, his his other novel, because it's not it's it's like a, it's a dirty book, she says. Mm-hmm. And she makes him like burn it in a barbecue grill. Yeah, she uh, she dumps him in. So the she kills the the sheriff's deputy who shows up or whatever, mm-hmm. and then has to go dump his car, mm-hmm. and then puts Paul Sheldon in in the basement for a week, mm-hmm. uh, which is like whoa, holy shit, and uh, which I really liked. I actually thought that was a great. It's a, such an unamping up the tension moment, right? You know, of like. And then he's just down there. And then, yeah, he cooks up this kind of plan. He finds the barbecue that she uh, made him uh, burn the other manuscript in and then kind of lay, sets a trap, sets a sets an art trap. For yeah. Her. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, he like gets the um, the uh, lighter fluid from the barbecue. He sneaks it back into his room when she takes him back up there. He gets like all of his like old manuscript pages that were like, you know, false starts or that had too many markouts on them or whatever. And he makes a fake manuscript. Uh, and then when he calls her in to like, you know, read it as she thinks, uh, then he sets fire to it. Uh, and actually how this is framed for you as the reader is like, he has just finished the novel and now he is going to, and now he just like burns it suddenly. And uh, she freaks out, tries to put it out, and in the process, like, catches herself on fire. He attacks her, like, uh, beats her over the head with the typewriter. Um, And then it turns out that he actually, like, took the real manuscript because the book was too good, right? The book was too good. He couldn't really destroy it. And so he hid it, uh, like, in the baseboard of the of the room or whatever. Um, He's still an addict, right? I yeah. mean, that's the thing. He's still, it, because it's the same thing he does with Novril, right? Uh-huh. Like. It's there's like uh, uh, games front of stage and games back of stage and his addiction forces him to play games back of stage because what would happen if you lost the thing you were connected to? Right. Which is right. Novril and the manuscript. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So he like uh, uh, beats her to death, except not really to death because she becomes a slasher movie villain here at the yeah. end. <laughs> yeah. She becomes Michael Myers. <laughs> right. Where like he he like she's like laying there on the ground. He's like beat her over the head with the um uh the the typewriter. And he's also like shoved like burning and burnt manuscript pages down her throat. Uh, and he's like trying to get out and then she like gets up again and, uh, he, he like has to fight her off again. She falls down. He like gets out into the living room and then it just so happens at about this point that, uh, the cops show up again and they, their wind is put up because she put a chain across her driveway to keep people from coming in. So they're like, oh, come on. Uh, and so he starts like hollering for them, hollering for help and uh, they find him in the living room, and then he tells them that she's in the back bedroom where where he uh, was being kept. And they go back there, and uh, the the deputy or the, like the cop who looks comes back and is like, "There's no one in there." And then he like just loses his mind, and that's where kind of that part of the book ends. And then we go into an epilogue where it turns out like he he's uh you know very traumatized, post traumatic stress. He's constantly imagining Annie like jumping out at him from behind every door or whatever. Um, although it, and it's like kept ambiguous for quite a bit, like whether or not like she, uh, died or whether she did true a pull Michael Myers, uh, uh, and like disappeared. And it's, she's eventually, it turns out like 
she did a half Michael Myers. She wasn't in the bedroom. What she did was she crawled out the window and then yeah. crawled to the barn and uh, died as she was reaching for her chainsaw. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, because we get a whole fake out ending. Uh-huh. Right? We get a fake out ending in which she disappears. Paul Sheldon is, is you know, he escapes. He goes back to New York and then she's waiting for him in his apartment one day. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it's it's so what a what an interesting way to end the novel, right? Like with a <laughs> I don't know a reverse Owl Creek. I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, but yeah, yeah, she dies uh, reaching for the chain, yeah, trying to become a Michael Myers, I guess. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, I love these cop characters too. <laughs> like like what a Stephen King got. They're like. Golly gee whiz, they were keeping, she was keeping this guy. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like, yeah, buddy, you figured it out. <laughs> look, I'm not saying, look, you, you shouldn't, not, you know, this obviously doesn't translate to the real world. Mm-hmm. But if you've got someone who's murdered like a million people and you know about it, and you were like 90% sure, and then Paul Sheldon disappears two miles from their house, mm-hmm. he's in that back bedroom. <laughs> Novel cops, like, you gotta right. get it together. Uh, oh, Chief Bannerman would have figured this out. Yeah, well, <laughs> if he'd been around, that's why. That's why Steve had to kill him because he realized right. that if I let Bannerman run around my continuity, he's just going to solve these mysteries too fast. He's too good. He's too smart. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, and then like I was saying earlier, right? Uh, he the real ending is that he goes. He's in New York, right? Mm-hmm. And he's kind of he's he's an alcoholic still. He's not really kicked any kind of addiction. He's drinking too much. He says. Mm-hmm. And he's starting to learn how to walk again and, and is doing pretty good at it. And he's learning how to write again. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah, he, he gets an idea for like a what appears to be it's going to be another literary fiction novel because he sees a kid pushing a, a shopping cart down the street with like a cage in it. And there's a skunk in the cage. <laughs> and then he starts right. writing like the story of the story of the boy uh, in a New York, like an abandoned New York tenement house who like meets a skunk <laughs> and who knows what wild adventures await them. Yeah, I don't. OK. <laughs> All right, Steve. <laughs> where, where do you rate this on? Uh, you know, we're now at the point where Stephen King has a reputation like historically mm-hmm. uh, in the late 80s. He's got the reputation for not being able to stick the ending. Yeah. Where do you think this one rates? I mean, I think it's actually pretty much a fine ending in that, like, I'm not, it's not like uh, one I'm super hot on, Mm -hmm. but it ends the story and it doesn't result in either um, just like the complete deus ex machina, literally, of the stand. Right. uh, Or the weird, like, um, I don't know how to escalate this satisfyingly, and so I'm just going to kind of like let it uh, let all the air out slowly, which we get in it. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and all the characters are still here. All the mainline characters who who are alive and matter, they're all here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah. I think it's pretty good. Yeah, like it's it's like a real ending. Yeah. It's fine. Like this, this, I, I, I agree with you. I thought, uh, based on you had commented that you were really not enjoying this early on. I thought we yeah. were going to come down on maybe like slightly a division here where I think I'm pretty all right on this novel, but I agree with you that it's kind of like, uh, the bottom half of mediocre, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I mean, I think the end of the novel saves it the last yeah. third or so, uh, just because it gets, I, I don't know. It's like a tone or, uh, uh, yeah, I guess a tone, a mood, uh, mm-hmm. an affect that is just kind of like not in Steve, right? Like mm-hmm. it just get, kind of gets like bleakly real, mm-hmm. um, in a way that I, that I, I found pretty good. Um, yeah. I thought it was great. You know about the uh, the other ending for this novel, the original ending for the novel. Oh, I don't. This didn't come up in my reading. I think this is in uh, on writing, maybe. Oh, it's, I've read Steve talk about it somewhere. Okay, uh, maybe in an interview or something. I didn't look it back up for this, but the uh, so maybe this is legend, and I'm just like transmitting yeah. it. But I believe this is in on writing. Uh, but uh, the original ending was going to be like a, a clip forward, like a flash forward to like. Annie Wilkes meeting with someone else mm-hmm. uh, and uh, like going to dinner and uh, she has bound, she has killed Paul Sheldon and fed him to misery, the pig. Oh yeah. And then uses the pig's skin to bind the book. Oh, okay. Yep. Uh, so that's interesting. Does that not show up or like the threat of that not show up in the film? I can't quite remember. Cause that was another thing that was, bouncing around in my head as I remembered something about that. And I thought it was like a threat that she made to him, but it doesn't actually show up in the book because we had, she has this pig out back named misery. And I was like, Oh yeah, there's something here about like the pig skin being used to bind the book. But then there's also maybe the threat of it being Paul's skin. And weirdly enough, in what I did read, um, in castle rock, there was someone who hadn't read the book uh, who gives the plot summary, and that's what he says happens. He's being interviewed oh. by someone, and he says that, yeah, it's about a writer who gets, like, kidnapped by his number one fan, and then she kills him and binds, like, she makes him write a book and then binds the book in his skin. And then the writer of the article, like, I think it actually might be that, uh, the the reprinted WAPO article um, that I was mm-hmm. reading from earlier, uh, the author is like, that isn't actually what happens. And I thought it was interesting that, like, some person out in the world in 1987 that was their impression of what the book like was about beginning to end and it's just not at all uh so yeah maybe that does happen in on writing but that that sounds very familiar yeah i i i believe it's in on writing Uh, Mm um but we'll find out and if i'm passing lore Mm -hmm. i'm happy to correct myself in the future eager to do so (laughs) um but uh we'll be talking about the movie in the bonus ode of course do we want to do some segments yeah let's do some segments first up is my favorite kingism this is the part of the show where cameron and i pick out uh some like bit of writing or a little bit of prose a textual or rhetorical technique that we have found in what we just read that we think is particularly kingy something that is uh definitive of king's style or something that he uh does uh particularly well um and mine for this time is something that you actually already alluded to uh the pilings which is in the first maybe fourth of this book a kind of recurring image that paul sheldon has uh pilings are the uh the the sort of like the the posts on a let's say a dock or a harbor like a, a when you go to the sea um the pilings are the posts furthest out that have been set into the the seabed and like when the tide goes out you see them and then when uh the tide comes in like they're they're obscured uh and Paul has this kind of memory of seeing the pilings uh, at Revere Beach, actually. Like, one of one of the Paul facts we get is that he grew up in, like, suburban Boston. Um, 
And so he has this childhood memory of seeing the pilings on Revere Beach and uh, like coming in the morning, seeing them and then the tide comes in and like watching them be obscured. And uh, this becomes his like way of thinking about uh, fading in and out of like consciousness of his pain. Like when he hasn't had his dose of Novril, uh, it's he can see the pilings. And then uh, when he takes the Novril, like the tide comes in and the pilings are obscured. Uh, and for whatever reason, uh, this is just this is the this is like the the image from this book that has stuck with me, right? Or rather, like this sort of technique of of having the uh, character sort of metaphorize his his own um, inner state, and uh, it's what I think about whenever I'm at the beach out here and I see some pilings. I think of Paul mm. Sheldon and his his Novril. Uh, I hate the pilings. Michael, the, the pilings are in fact the thing where I was going. This is this is as bad as rage or worse. <laughs> it was in these interminable segments of like fading in and out of consciousness and thinking about the fucking pilings. It's as bad as thinking about H. Ryder Haggard <laughs> to me. Um, it's a good image, right? I, it's not, I'm not critical of the image. I'm critical of the overuse of it because it dominates yeah. the first third and it then does. goes away. Uh -huh. Like that maybe is the most frustrating part. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was, uh, I mean, if I, I would critique it, that would be it is that it is, it's this image that seems to have a whole lot of weight put on it. Uh, and then it just stops being important. Um, mm -hmm. but I don't know. I'm here making demands, uh, about Steve as a romantic author and I need my organic unity or whatever. Right. Huge mistake. Mm -hmm. on your part uh mine is the what we were talking about before the uh the photo album like i i just love the like slow like the learning moment of of uh uh you know like uh oh she was like a childhood evil person and then mm -hmm. she became a young adult evil person <laughs> then she became an adult evil like i just the slow move and also there's like little things in there that are just so like stephen kingy that i really enjoy uh, like the fact that she writes marginalia to her own, <laughs> like a uh, photo album of her murders she's committed. Yes. You know, she's like underlining things or whatever. And it's like, oh, we got to make sure that we, it, it really is like the video game, like, uh, uh oh, they're here, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, graffiti on the wall or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I like it. I think it's great. And it like, it works. Like it sells mm. her. She's already like frightening. Right, uh -huh. obviously. But it sells her as like an evil, you know, a capital mm -hmm. E evil. She's as bad as Pennywise, you know, right. in this kind of, um, I don't know, her own telling of her tale. Uh, and I also like the stuff that happens there, too, with he then connects up unrelated things, you know, that she said, you know, because she talks about the oh. family she grew up with. Right, and she just right. kind of off offhand mentions it earlier. And then he's reading the thing. He's like, wait a minute. This is that family she was complaining about that she hated. And so he puts together, oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I like that a lot. I think that's cool. Yeah, I, I, it's it's really well done, really well constructed, and I think really well paced, right? It's the sort of thing where uh, you, you gestured at this, but like Steve could have gone on a lot longer with this. There there are Steves, you know, in other novels who do maybe overplay this a little bit, but it's yeah. re done really well here. Yeah, I think, you know, I like Tommy Knockers a lot. We're about to read that. That is a novel that indulges in all of these things that, that I like a lot in King way too much. Like, mm. and I know that I'm aware of that. 
uh, you know, the kind of like city view stuff that I like a lot. Well, that's going to be a huge part of Tommyknockers. Uh, walking through weird ancient evils for maybe a little bit too long and the effects that they have on their environs therein, maybe a little bit too long, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it's an indulgent book for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, what in the Kingiverse, our next segment, is where we just highlight connections to other King works that we have noticed, uh, either kind of uh, elliptical, kind of symbolic or thematic sometimes, uh, but often very much within uh, the actual Kingiverse of these stories being uh, related or pseudo-related in kind of a, a general continuity. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the big ones that comes off of what you were just talking about with the photo album uh, is uh, one of Annie's last and or most recent relative to Paul being captured murders is a young man uh, who goes missing uh, in kind of the area where Annie lives, which is a small town called Sidewinder, Colorado, which we've seen before in The Shining. And uh, we learn from Annie that this young man um, whom she killed uh, in in the article, it's just like his body is found and it's been like uh, uh, disfigured and so on. Um, uh, she reveals that he was an artist who was in town, uh, uh, he claimed to her, or as she reports it, he was in town to, uh, do some sketches of the ruins of a burned out hotel that, uh, the caretaker, you know, uh, decades or so back, uh, went crazy and burned down. Uh, and just, just so we, we aren't missing it here. Uh, she in fact does say, well, it was called the overlook and blah, 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 blah. So like (laughs) we get like one sentence too much, I think, uh, uh, you know what you were saying about sometimes Steve can't help himself. Um, I think that would have been a bit more effective if she just hadn't named the hotel, if she had just said, you know, there's this hotel that burned down, but we get like, you know, the, the like two sentences that tell you what people thought happened at the end of the shining right <laughs> right uh yeah and uh yeah it, it, i guess the thing too that's interesting about that is it only burned down like 10 years before right like yeah it's pretty fairly recent i mean mm-hmm. obviously i guess right because the novel yeah, no, 10 years is- exactly 77 <gasps> uh the uh it's it, there's some restraint here. Sorry, it took me a second to get there. Uh, <laughs> there's some interesting restraint here, too. You can imagine two things happening in this book. If Steve rewrote Misery today, you know, mm-hmm. having transformed a bit as an author, there are two things that don't happen that you could imagine could. One would be an elaborate demonstration of an uptick in violence that occurred with the Overlook being mm-hmm. destroyed. Mm-hmm. And then Annie Wilkes moving to the area when the overlook burns down. Right. Because she's like a lure, you know what I mean? That that mantis flying around. Mhm. Mhm. The place but, of power draws her in. Right. And maybe it does. I mean, you we could still make that argument maybe in Doctor Sleep we get some sort of like thing about that. Mm-hmm. I you know, I don't remember from reading it, but it wouldn't shock me if we get like a weird Annie Wilkes thing going on in Doctor Sleep. Mhm. Uh the other thing being Huge amount of restraint on Steve's part not to have her when she kind of, uh, you know, goes catatonic or blank or whatever, you know, uh, pseudo real thing that occurs there uh, that the deadlights don't show up. <laughs> right. Like that was astonishing to me that we didn't <laughs> get a deadlight somewhere here or like, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, like Carrie White's mom, you know, the uh, 
praying to oh, uh yeah the the secretly pr- pr- praying to lovecraft's nyarlathotep <laughs> right right yeah. i'm really shocked that neither of those kind of you know i don't know with lori kind of things happened but that also harkens back to this being a you know Skeeb says explicitly in the interview that i think i read from or talked about last time uh you know this would have been if bachman as a name had not been blown up this would have been a bachman novel explicitly right it was planned to be one, and mm-hmm. uh, you know that that makes a lot of sense. I wonder if like I, I this he must have put in these references to himself after that because like I can't see him publishing this with like references to The Shining and people not putting two and two together or like him blowing this thing up. I don't know. I mean, that's the other thing to think about. Sorry, pointing back to like general yeah. discussion. Sure. Uh, in as much as this is a novel about Paul being public, uh, punished for not respecting his own genre work, right? If we if we telescope out a bit from there, this is actually a novel about pseudonyms. Yeah. Oh right? yeah. Even yeah. though he writes under his own name, right? But he has like two different streams of writing that he feels like are intention in some way, uh, and this is the story of him like putting those together, possibly maybe. Oh, I will say this. I, I again going back, I guess, to general discussion, but around that, I think you're right. A hundred percent. It's like, how do you staple together two different careers? Mm-hmm. Right. Which implies that the Bachman books are his more literary novels. And I guess they are in that they are more like realist, you know, uh, they're, you know, um, uh, mund- as Samuel Delaney would have said around the same time, they're mundane fiction. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, it, I think Delaney stopped using that term, but it is a little bit helpful sometimes. So it is about like trying to make two personas meet, I guess, and what happens. And I guess ultimately what Paul Sheldon tries to do is become the Bachman character entirely. Mm-hmm. And oh, the genre pulls you back in. But Tabitha, of course, told us that that was not the case. Right. Um, that, you know, those were always the same things at the same time. But I will say this, having you know read now for the It episode uh, and for this episode, reading a lot of interviews and checking around and stuff like that. The story that Steve, I think I've alluded to this before, but I really want to say it explicitly here. The story that Steve tells about Bachman, just it, given all the historical context, seems like utter bullshit to me at this point. Yeah, uh, that all seems like post hoc. This is what I was doing. Uh, the the literary experiment thing, you know, that, that mm-hmm. he talks about in the Bachman essay that, uh, oh, I just wanted to see if lightning could strike twice. You know, is it me or did I just get lucky? It, that seems like absolute bullshit, given 86, 87 and what we know about that. Everyone at the time. Everyone, even Steve, is talking about how Bachman was invented in order to sell more books. Mm-hmm. to get around his publisher's restrictions on one book per year. And blowing up the Bachman name really just has an effect for Steve of proving that he can sell more than one book a year, which is what he wanted to do to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, to me, like, you know, occasionally I got to be, like, a naive political economy guy, right? But, like, <laughs> I'm naively political economy on this. I think everything else is, you know, the Bachman story that Steve tells. I think that's a story. I think that's a little bit of rose-colored glasses looking back. Mm-hmm. I think for the most part, this is just uh, it was Steve wanted to prove that he could sell two books a year and that people would buy them. And I think that he blows up the name on purpose in order to get to put his name on all of it. Yeah, I just I think just given all the information that we have, I, I, I the story he tells seems so unlikely. And we know for a fact that Steve says at the time, what is ev- whatever's the better story, right? Like mm-hmm. go for the gross out, print the myth. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I think that the Bachman being Bachman as an essay is printing the myth. 
Right. I think I think both of those things can coexist. Right. I think like, you know, people are complex individuals. Uh, Absolutely. And, so, and they change right? over time. Right. Well, and I think like on the one hand, right, I think there can be a kind of like, well, I want I really want to be selling uh more books a year. Here's my way mm-hmm. around that. And then I think like even as you're doing that, I think especially not project too much onto Steve, but like uh like why why have that need right it feels almost compulsive right. right this desire to publish more and maybe in that uh, uh that compulsion there is some seed of like what becomes the the bachman essay of mm-hmm. like what the hell is happening to me what the hell is happening to my life while i am here i need to try to make as much bank as possible <laughs> right Right. Well, and, and there's also two. I I want to talk about it the next time we get to a Bachman novel because there's actually a couple more to go. Yeah. Uh, and that's actually really fun to me that Stephen King. It's revealed that Richard Bachman is him, and he's like, let's just bring that out of retirement every now and again. Yes. Let's let's do a Bachman. Why not? Uh huh. I like it. And then and uh, in them, there's like a little bit of fiction around it too. Like, oh, we discovered another no- uh, Bachman novel. Uh-huh, uh huh. Uh-huh. You know, like I think the regulators has a uh, like a thing from his wife. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Bachman's fictional wife, but uh, but I want to bring it out because what's fascinating to me is that it's not said in the Bean Bachman essay, but someone in Castle Rock floats the "Hey, is Richard Bachman Stephen King?" very early, mm-hmm. like real early, and that's not mentioned anywhere in the like official story of Bachman. Um, so I'm going to dig that out, and because I've actually read the issue at this point, but I'll dig that out and talk about it a little bit when we get the next Bachman essay. So that that story is much more complicated than it's than it's told of. Yeah, uh, at this this point, but we're in the middle of what in the Kingiverse? <laughs> yeah, and this is the second point. You actually put this one in. I noticed it, but I forgot to write it down. Uh, there was a point where Paul is again reflecting on his childhood in in suburban Boston, and his mother goes in to Boston for like a shopping trip or something one day with uh, Eddie Kasprak's mom. Yeah. Speaking of restraint, like Steve doesn't go any more <laughs> on this, but like it's like, hey, yeah. that's that's Eddie Kasprak's mom who just like whipped through here real quick <laughs> but but does that mean that that paul sheldon is from Derry? no what no because uh uh well and the, actually hold on let me double check right uh, because it, this is when he's a no, kid no, no, no. right it is when he's a kid but yeah. um uh the thing about uh, uh eddie and his mom move away after oh, the so this is post that, that that's what i was confused about Right, like yeah. I think, um, after the adv- the events of uh the ev- mm-hmm. the fifties timeline and it, uh, all of the losers move away. Yeah. Um, let me double check and see. Yep, Sonia uh, Kasprak oh, is yeah. the name of Eddie's mother, and so mm-hmm. that's the name that is in this book. So yeah, we're I, Steve also maybe occasionally reuses names. Patrick Hockstetter, <laughs> like <laughs> the Patrick Hockstetter and it cannot be the Patrick Hockstetter and Firestarter. Just doesn't work. Um, but this seems maybe a little bit of a, uh, of a reference there. Oh, and the kid to, uh, the kid that, uh, Jack beats up. In, oh, uh, yeah. The Shining showing up again in the talisman. The talisman. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. Oh, the, yeah. I, and I'll be honest. I gotta be honest. I actually didn't notice this. Uh, I just totally like, I guess just didn't see it. Didn't notice it. Didn't put Casper <laughs> together. Uh, but, uh, Brian, or my friend, Brian. Messaged me immediately about this. <laughs> it was like, did you see? And I was like, yeah. no, nah, I, I didn't. But I, I did put it in. So I got to give credit where credit's due. 
Oh, thank you. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, I like I said, I noticed it but forgot because what I where I left it was like I need to double check whether or not Sonia was Eddie's mom's name because I remembered that Sonia Casbrack. Uh, Just the extended Casbrack family, maybe. Right. <laughs> the Sackville Casbracks. <laughs> of course. Um, uh, and then sort of a third little reference, much smaller, but again, pointing us to Derry. Uh, there is a point in kind of the final third where Paul refers to a bad situation as a fuckero, uh, yeah, which yeah. is a, a big key term for dream catcher. <laughs> Fuckeries and fuckeros. Uh-huh. <laughs> I can't wait. Dream is going to be good. <laughs> I think that Dreamcatcher is, uh, you know, I don't want to preview too much because it's like two years away, but Dreamcatcher is a fascinating novel because it's a novel he wrote right after his accident while he was high on painkillers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Because his body was shattered into a thousand pieces. Right. And it actually kind of re-kickstarted some addiction issues that he had. He's written about the, this uh, as well. Uh, but, uh, it's, but it's so fascinating to me because it is this weird distillation of like a million other things. And fuckery be or fuckero being one of those things is because it's like he writes a greatest hits book, you know, to right. some degree. Uh, and it's a greatest hits book that includes, you know, even a piece of misery, even though I'm sure that that's not what he was consciously thinking about at the time. Yeah. Although maybe no, he was. Maybe he spent 15 years being like, I got to get that word back in. <laughs> yes. How am I going to get fuckero back in? Who oh, would man. say that? <laughs> it's that uh that clip from mean girls like steve stop stop trying to make fuckero happen <laughs> no he should do it i wish we all said that <laughs> we should start uh, using it let's start using i mean didn't i use it haven't i used it in like a recent homestuck episode i don't yeah, know I, yeah, I think you might have but i'm saying we should like it like uh-oh car accident up ahead a real fuckero like yeah. we gotta start like making it banal is what I'm okay saying. yeah <laughs> uh, all right all right. Uncle Stevie's mixtape is where we talk about the songs that show up in the book and we mm-hmm. rate them uh, mm-hmm. from uh, one to five stars. There could be no we, we use review rules, the TV show review review where I believe there can be no zero stars. Yeah. Half a star is the lowest star rating. You're first up. Am I first up? I am. Uh, yeah. Roger Miller's King of the Road. This is a hard one. I have two. You really gave me two hard ones, by the way. Uh-huh. I just want to point that out. <laughs> Like two real hard ones. Uh, this this song I give two stars, but here's the reason why. It would probably be okay if I haven't heard it eight billion times in everything. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It just gets used as this like Americana, like, hey, do you remember that time when people get in their cars and drive from coast oh, to coast? Shit, I forgot one. Hold on. So continue. I'm sorry. All uh, right. We'll we'll, re- re- we'll revisit this. But yes. okay. Yeah. You can add it to the end. Uh, yeah. The uh, but uh, but that's why, right? Yeah. Like it's just like over overplayed, and I think that whatever charm it has is overridden by my displeasure of having to hear it for the fifteen billionth time. So two stars. Okay. Uh, I had uh, Cindy Lauper. Girls just want to have fun. Five stars. Michael also just wants to have fun, and this song is fun. It's great. Uh, this album from Cindy Lauper, by the way, I can't. Mm-hmm. It's not "She's So Unusual," is it? Oh, I don't wait. know. Let me look. You're not going to stop me from talking about this. I know no. you gave it to yourself to keep me from talking about Cindy Lauper for too long. <laughs> I know how you do, but uh-huh. I believe it's "She's So Unusual." Yeah, "She's So Unusual" is the name of this album. Uh, if you take any recommendation seriously from this show, mm-hmm. this should be one. 
uh, dear view a listener, that you take. Just sit down and listen to all of She's So Unusual, top to bottom. Mm-hmm. It is a amazing album. All right. Uh, it, it like here here okay track one for side one right track one money changes everything you've never heard this song before it's pretty good track two girls just want to have fun track three when you were mine a cover of the prince song oh wow or actually maybe it's not a cover this might actually be her just performing it i can't remember i can't remember the chronology here but when you were mine it has the best cindy lopper vocal she ever performed she does a little, uh, uh, when you were mine, and she does a, whoa, whoa. Obviously, mm-hmm. I can't sing as well as Cindy Lauper. Prince would never do it. Mm-hmm. But we got that. And then you get time after time. Damn. That's side one. That's side one? Uh, yeah. It's Anyway, so you should uh, just take it. And also, uh, beginning of side two is She Bop. Truly oh. one of the oddest songs ever made. But wow. uh, just listen to it. I went on a Cindy Lauper kick a couple years ago where I just listened to all of her albums top to bottom over and over again while I was like writing. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they hold up. Let me tell you. They're good. Okay. Uh, well, <laughs> now you got to talk about another song, Cameron. <sighs> this is Paul Simon's 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, and, which I've heard before, but not recently. And I sat down and listened to it. It's two stars because it's not very good. But the thing that really struck me uh, is that the way the chorus is written is that it's the Mambo number five of the 70s. It is. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a person's name and what they should do. A person's uh-huh. name and what they should do. A person's name and what they should do for a long time. Uh, it's terrible. I, I really don't like this song. Um, I don't think I like Paul Simon. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. I never really thought about it before, but I think now I've come to the fact that uh, due to a thing you've done to me that I don't like Paul Simon. <laughs> Uh, next up is Nat King Cole, Those Lazy, Hazy, Crazy Days of Summer. Uh, five stars again. This is this is a good uh, Nat King Cole song, and uh, I love to listen to this song and imagine uh, blowing stuff up in a Fallout game. <laughs> of course. I got Michael Jackson's Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, which, thanks, Michael, mm-hmm. for giving me this one. Uh Fascinating to hear Michael Jackson's song show up in a Stephen King novel. Yeah. Like, obviously, they were both huge at the same time. I'm not... It's, it shouldn't be shocking, but I don't know. I just don't... The idea of doing it... This did make me think of... I forgot to say it a minute ago, but I do. we got to bring it up here. That uh, in the middle of, of him being tortured, like in the back third of the novel, and he's like wasting away, right? Like he, he's his arm or his, his, his foot chopped off. He's got his hand, you know, mangled here. All kinds of stuff. Paul Sheldon is like, I just wish I should, I could hear a good old riff of rock and roll. Yeah. He has a long segment where he like like two full pages where he's like, I just wish I could get a dose of that old rock and roll. <laughs> uh, Michael Jackson's legacy is, of course, completely tarnished, annihilated by his behavior as a mm-hmm. human being, which by all accounts uh, was atrocious and abhorrent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, it's this weird thing of like, as a pop song, don't stop till you get enough is like, it is infrastructure of pop music, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can't, it, it, the, Michael Jackson, the eighties is like building all the sounds we still, still hear today. Uh, ab- but absolutely annihilated by, uh, mm-hmm. Michael Jackson's actual behavior as a person. So I think this has got to be, I, I'm even changing my rating as I'm saying it. It's gotta be two stars. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, next song for me is Disco Inferno by The Tramps. And you know what? The first two tracks I had on here were treating me pretty well. I wasn't sure what I was going to do with this one because like this is a song that everyone knows, right? Like everyone has heard Disco Inferno. It is it is like stock disco music. This is the mm-hmm. first time I ever really sat down and listened to it through the whole thing. There's a reason you hear it all the time. Five stars. Great, great work, everyone. You're just riding high on it. Yeah. So you've added a song called Chugalug. Yes, this is what I forgot, is that there are two Roger Miller songs in this. And I, for, I I had the note on this, but I forgot to put it in the show doc. And I noticed, I mean, it's notable that like two Roger Miller songs showed up. And then this one is called Chugalug. Technically, it's yours, but I figure we can both like have a reaction to it live I'm on I'm listening air. to it right now. I'm doing it. Yeah. It's awful. <laughs> what in God's name is this hillbilly garbage? What is happening? Yeah, I, is, I know this, this song. is awful, Michael. This song used to be, uh, I think it was used in a commercial or something for maybe like Mountain Dew, I think. Uh-huh. Uh, that's just, I, I knew it. Like when it showed up, I was like, oh, this is that song. Cause I know I'd heard it in a commercial before. Um, you should be using a commercial for landfills. It's terrible. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's goofy. I mean, you've said it before. Steve loves himself a novelty song about, uh, juggalugging, I guess in this case. Yeah. Uh, one star. It's, it's yeah. awful. Yeah. One star. It's very I listened to 40 seconds. That was more than enough. <laughs> I aged two years in that 40 seconds. All right. My name's Roland. And I've aged many years by listening to Chugalug in one night. Oh my god. The lobstrosities skitter out of the out of the waves and they're like Chugalug. You think that's where it came from? Chugalug, Chugalug, Heidi Ho. <laughs> um <laughs> Oh, I can't honor that in any way cuz that's disgusting to me. Okay. <laughs> Uh, and then I guess, uh, that wraps it up. Like, that was our what's last that? segment. What's your, what's your, uh, are we, what episode is this? Is this episode 25? This is episode 26. 26. That, does that mean we've been doing this for, no, we've already hit our anniversary episode. I was going to say we should do our power rankings at some point, mm-hmm. but maybe Tommy Knockers is where we do our power rankings. Yeah, Of I think everything so. we've done so far, because we haven't done that, I think, since last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I say that is that after Tommy Knockers, and we'll get more into this next time, but around right now, 87, 88, there starts being this rumor going around. It shows up in the Castle Rock newsletter that we've talked about a few times, the fanzine, um, that Steve is about to go on a sabbatical mm-hmm. because he published four books in like a 12 month period or like an 18 month period, something like that. Or right. did I say 12 books, four books <laughs> in a 12 month period. <laughs> Uh, uh, and so he publishes a lot all at once and, and we know behind the scenes, the kind of, uh, addiction issues are coming to a head. And so there becomes this statement. I think actually Steve writes about it somewhere. Uh, and he says, you know, I think I want to take a break for a little while and not publish anything for a couple of years, uh, and not feel so much pressure to produce. And I, it doesn't really work out that way. Historically, I think he still kind of ends up publishing, I think a book a year for a while, but, uh, but I, I think that's a good time to take stock. And that, that rumor and the kind of big question mark of what's the next Steve book after Tommy Knockers, that's that's when it appears. So next episode we'll do our power rankings of like what you know, of what we've done so far, what's our big rank order? because uh, yeah. I think pe- people ask us that quite often, you know, what what's the best of what we read so far? And I think mm-hmm. that that uh, that's a good time to do it. 
I think it is too, because I think on our, our previous anniversary episode, I went on record as saying that for a long, long time, the Tommy Knockers was my least favorite King novel, like oh, okay. the one that I would put forth as like my most hated. Mm-hmm. Um, and with like sort of the experience of this show under my belt and sort of, you know, the 12 years or whatever, I don't know, however long it's been, actually it's been longer than 12 years, my God. I know specifically the day I started reading the Tommy Knockers. Why? Because it's the day that the Tommy Knockers starts. Like there's a specific date that the events in the Tommy Knockers start and in like 1988. And I started reading the Tommy Knockers on that day in the year 2000. And I remember like opening up the book and seeing the date yeah. on the first page and being like, what the fuck? Oh, not on purpose. I thought you were you were like, I'm going to wait. No, no. That's what it sounded like you were building up to. No. But it just happened out. It just happened over you know, that way. The Tommy Knockers begins on June 21st, 1988. And I started reading the Tommy Knockers on June 21st of the year 2000. Um, so that's always just locked in my head forever. Because huh. <laughs> uh, it was a really weird moment. Uh, and it, it was a book that I ended up hating quite a bit. Right. Uh, and with the experience of this show kind of under my belt, I'm interested in revisiting that and having already said this right i've started reading the tommy knockers already uh first 50 pages of that book pretty damn solid actually i haven't started reading yet uh yeah. i'm uh, trying to get through some other fir- stuff first but I- i'm on record i think it's great i like mm-hmm. it, legitimately like it but I-, I also haven't read it probably since like the mid 2000s or something um mm-hmm. and actually i mean we'll talk about it in the episode but i had like a weird reaction where i really liked that book it, you know as like a preteen and then as i got a little bit older and started reading a little bit more about stephen king i realized that everyone hated the book and mm-hmm. i was like oh it must be me who was wrong <laughs> and i never went back and read it again even though i read it a bunch of times as a preteen right uh, so i'm interested in going back and checking it out but i got a lot of fond memories you know being honest with my my old memory self and my my uh emotions and feelings I think it's fucking rad. And I remember mm. the ending of it so clearly. And there's so many images from it that I remember of, you know, I got to be frank with you. There's going to be a bunch of books coming up, you know, like from most of the nineties, actually, where I don't remember most of those novels, even though I know I read them, they, you know, they just don't stick in my head. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't really, t- I can tell you some stuff that happens in like Rose matter, but not a lot <laughs> of stuff that happens in Rose matter. Um, but, but we'll, we'll get there. Um, so yeah, we're going to be doing the Tommy Knockers, and uh, we'll be back in a month. Yeah, I'll see you then. And uh, I mean, hopefully, we keep doing it for some reason. I can't think of what. Uh, let's see. Uh... We're trapped in the back bedroom. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, all of our listeners have us trapped in a back bedroom, and they're forcing us to do this. Hey, please, if you can do me a favor, stop trapping me in the back bedroom. That's it really sucks. It sucks. It's awful. <laughs> Support us on Patreon instead. Do it for Steve. <laughs>